Steve and Kevin reflect on the 2015 Vintage Championship on episode 47 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 47 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Championship Review. We'll be covering the experience of the weekend, our decks and individual performance. We'll examine our predictions and how they fared, the metagame breakdown, the success of various archetypes, the top eight decks, of course. We'll relate several interesting and humorous anecdotes about the event, and we'll close by looking at a few thought-provoking scenarios that arose throughout the weekend. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Kevin, this was an unbelievable weekend, and the tournament was, in almost every respect, amazing and surpassed our wildest prediction. I mean, we had almost 500 people show up to play Vintage, making it one of the largest Vintage events of all time. I couldn't agree more. Uh, There aren't enough superlatives to talk about how this event was this year and how it continues to improve year over year. As expected, we we saw um, nearly all of the luminaries of the Vintage format uh, friends from far and wide, people we see maybe only once a year. Uh, we had great play, great decks, a great uh, venue. Just it was awesome. I can't wait to get in the nitty gritty. And you've done some amazing legwork here in pulling together some of this data. And we also have to credit Jason Jaco, who took all the deck lists and compiled them and organized them for us. And what we've done is just building on his work. But this is going to be some amazing stuff. So let's get into it. We'll start where we normally start to get a few announcements out of the way. Steve, there was some correction from last episode you wanted to cover? Yeah, in our last episode, which was our Vintage Championship preview, I had incorrectly um, attributed a dredge variant to Thomas Dixon, when in fact it was someone else completely different, uh, who I think goes by the name King Neckbeard on Magic Online. And I had a chance to, to speak with this person before the Vintage Championship and actually do some testing against his deck, which is incredibly powerful and we'll talk about in a bit. But uh, apologies for getting the, the wrong person attributed to that. Yeah, these things happen. Now, we do have upcoming tournaments. You've got Eudaimonia Vintage on the 20th, is that right? Yeah, we've got a a Northern California event in Berkeley. So uh, for those of you in the Northern California area, please show up and support Vintage in the Bay. Uh, That'll be September 20th, and that'll be a lot of fun. And I'd like to mention September 12th in Lafayette, Indiana, there is a sanctioned underscore sanctioned vintage event at Legendary Games in Lafayette. Now, I've been to this store. It's a nice store, and they had a sanctioned event before, and the turnout was, if I recall, 12 to 15 players. So not bad, as vintage goes, especially given that it was sanctioned. So anyone who comes out, you can expect a good store with nice owners, but be prepared to have zero proxies. Are you going to be going to that? Yes, I am. I'll be going with another friend of mine, Aaron Katz, and hopefully some other missionary folks will be able to make it, but uh, I expect... Given the success of their other prior events, that will probably have a turnout maybe in the 15 to 25 range this time. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. The events at Udo, we've been getting you know between 20 and 30, and I actually think it's about the right number because you get you get you know good five rounds of Swiss in the top eight, and it doesn't you know it doesn't 
take too long, too much time. Agreed. Um, so, yeah. And you have updates to your articles and books? Yeah, I just wanted to announce that I my Vintage Championship tournament report is on VintageMagic.com. Um, you can see that I, Vintage Magic was my sponsor for the event. And I, as I've been mentioning in previous podcasts, I have a whole series of old school magic articles. And I think we'll probably talk, we may discuss old school in a future podcast, but um. I'll be advertising those, you know, just promoting them on Twitter. So be on the lookout for them. And then finally, my long-awaited gush book is I, I'm turning back to that. <laughs> uh, and I'll be working on it pretty hard this fall, trying to get that cranked out. I mean, I have, again, I've gone through and have a complete draft. It's like 400 and some pages. But uh, I need to go back through and, and do the final edits. The editor, Jason Jaco, has, has done that. But I need to review all of his edits. And it's just really hard work. But I'm going to get through it. And, you know, we've got a nice little break here in the fall. So I'll be taking the time to do that. So, and, and this is a great time to do it because Gush is awesome, and I'm, I'm coming off playing a Gush deck at Vintage Champ, so I'm really excited to get cracking on it again. Awesome. You and me both. <laughs> well, in a continuation of our announcements section, and because this is our Eternal Weekend review, we have an extended bit of congratulations here to offer up. We've already mentioned how great Eternal Weekend was and continues to be, and that's primarily due to Nick Koss and Card Titan they just continue to run an exemplary event, an exemplary weekend filled with events and prizes that are unique and a nice venue, good location, lots of good eternal-focused vendors. And they they ratcheted up the support this year in terms of additional prizes to all participants in Legacy and Vintage. The playmats were a big hit. And attendances showing 744 players in Legacy is is just incredible. It's way higher than last year and way higher than of an increase than we predicted. It is truly remarkable how many people showed up for this event. You know, when when it was first announced that the Vintage Championship would not be at Gen Con, I think it was in, what, 2013 mm-hmm. at this point, Kevin? You and I were, were had a whole segment on one of our shows speculating as to what they could possibly be thinking. You know, we had a whole bunch of options. We said, well, maybe they're moving it to, to coincide with some other event because of the 20th anniversary of the game. Mm-hmm. But maybe we even we thought it was unlikely that maybe they were going to put both championships in a special eternal a weekend event. It turned out to be what they did. And I really think that that approach is paying massive dividends, um, you know, because you get all the people who really interested in these formats together for one special event. It creates this, you know, the focus of the whole weekend are these events as opposed to sort of trying to piggyback them onto something else like a Gen mm-hmm. This is just, it's, it's proving to be an enormously successful approach. And Nick Cost deserves tons of credit for going out on a limb and proposing it. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the other thing is that I really thought the venue was improved this this year. Um, to your point, I, I like the space they chose. Um, you know, you didn't have to climb up the the various uh, two story escalators. Escal- <laughs> yeah, the MC Escher escalator setup, you know, <laughs> which was a bit confusing in the past. Uh, I thought this was perfect. It was easily accessible, and I, I just have to reiterate everything that you said. Um, you know, this this playmat thing. You know, this lore of playmats. <laughs> so. We know that some number of people signed up to get the playmat, mm-hmm. and I believe the Vintage Championship playmat was the Thalarian Academy playmat. Yep. Is that correct? That's right. That playmat is beautiful. It really is. It's really beautiful. And, you know, it, it strikes me that how, how much longer can people be lured by playmats? I mean, you only need one playmat <laughs> when you play a game of Magic, yet it seems like people's, you know, demand and really their demand for playmats is insatiable in some respects. And I can see why, because these playmats are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we should just mention that although 482 people registered, pre-registered for the event, uh, some 20 
one or so did not actually show up at the player meeting. Right. But that's still 460 plus of players in this event, which is, you know, smashing every record we've had as a vintage champion. So throughout this show, you may hear us reference 482 players or 462 players. That's the reason for that. We have about 20 players, as Steve put it. I think 20 is the right number, according to Jayco's numbers, that are they were in the event technically, but they they may have registered a, a viable deck even, but they didn't show or didn't play after round one. So they put a little bit of noise into the numbers. To continue the congratulations, though, we should talk about the winners. And the first real winner of the, the whole weekend's festivities came on Friday night, when Randy Bueller won the old school event that was hosted by Eternal Central. And how many players was that, Steve? 50? Oh, uh, I think we had 56 register and 54 showed up. Which is in, which it, is amazing. I mean, that's a huge turnout for an old school event. Yeah, that ended up being the second largest old school event of, of this sort of, you know... Era. In recent years. Yeah, this era, exactly right. Uh, which, is, which is awesome. And it's clear from the social media reaction and the discussion about the event that there were many more people who wished they had been there. In fact, a point of fact, Brian Weissman uh, made a comment in one of the YouTube videos. We should, we'll post the links, but there's the old school tech YouTube videos with me and Randy Bueller as separate videos. And Brian Weissman responded saying he wish he'd known about the event. He would have loved to play. Yeah, that's awesome. So old school got a lot of love. It was a fun event and just a fun atmosphere too to be amongst all the players. Now, we don't cover the legacy very much in this show, but still, congratulations to Bob Huang, our champion with Grixis Delver and Legacy. The Legacy Top 8 was very interesting. Multiple Delver decks of different varieties, but I think Grixis has the advantage, what with the increased size of Gurmag Angler. And of course, congratulations to Brian Kelly, our vintage champ, with his Dragon Lord Romica Oath deck, which we will talk about Absolutely. in some detail at, near, the, uh, near the end of the show. Definitely. And thanks again to Jayco and Eternal Central for compiling a lot of the data that we're relying on here for this show. For those of you who don't know, we'll post a link, but Jayco pulled all the deck lists for both the prelim event and the main event. Now, he didn't publish all decks as of the recording right now, but he plans to, and possibly by the time you're listening to this, all 482 decks will be posted on Eternal Central for your viewing pleasure. As of now, though, he did provide us with the top 32 decks and an archetype breakdown of all players. which And an archetype breakdown of all players by final standing. Absolutely, right. which is key to our analysis because we'll be talking about the performance uh, over the whole of the metagame and the penetration of various decks into the top tables. He didn't actually post all the decklets from the prelims. He only posted the top eight. Oh, okay. I thought he was posting all of them. Okay. He, just, he doesn't have them. He just got the top eight okay. decklets. That's a bummer. It's okay. I mean, the fact that he got the top eights is awesome. There are 109 players in prelims. Which is amazing. Let's move on then to our predictions and how they panned out. Steve, we're going to do something we haven't ever done before on this show with this episode, and that is splice a little audio from our prior episode talking about what we predicted for the metagame and the top eight. Yeah, I, I went back and listened as well, and uh, I'm excited to, to play you know, our prediction against what actually happened. But let's just summarize what we predicted. Um, as you'll hear in this bit, uh, Kevin and I both predict the metagame, and then we predicted the top eight, and we're going to play for you our top eight predictions. Um, so let's do that right now. I 
top eight will we'll have at least one dredge and at least one workshop. Mm-hmm. I think likely two dredge and likely three workshops. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's going to be a four workshop top eight, but I could be wrong. Um, and I think I think it's going to be you know I think there's um, so that's five non blue decks and three blue decks. That's why I think the top eight's going to be. I think that's reasonable. I think that's totally fair. There's and I don't think there's going to be any oath. I'm going to go on a limb and say that zero oath. Yeah, I think oath. There are a number of factors conspiring against it. So what's your prediction then for your top eight? What do you think the top eight is? I think the top eight is going to be at least two workshops, at least one dredge. I think there's going to be... Those are my floors too. Yeah, that's that the floor. I also think there's a floor of at least one non-Grixis blue-based control. Not gush, not gush. I don't call it... Yeah, not gush at all. I'm talking about either Bomberman or Landstill. The, the answer is in that population too. <laughs> Do you think a gush deck is going to make top eight? I think it could. I think one gush deck could make top eight. One thing we should just point out is I don't expect there to be a doomsday deck in the top eight. (laughs) (laughs) No, nor do I expect there to be a Belcher deck in the top eight. Sorry. ESL aside. Yeah. Oh, boy. But I think think that uh, 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 there could be maybe like a Stoneblade style control also could make the cut. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's been, I mean, there could very well be an oath top eight. I don't want to completely discount it. Uh, I, uh, I kind but, of, I am willing to discount it. I think that oath isn't going to make the cut this year at all. So to recap our what we just played for you, Kevin predicted uh, two shop, one dredge, and then he said at least one bomberman slash landstill. And and what else, Kevin? One gush deck, but no oaths. Right. And then I predicted two dredge, three shop, and three three blue decks with at least one gush, but zero oath. Kevin, how did our prediction actually fare? Well, our top eight turned out to be first place, Brian Kelly on Dragon Lord Dramoka Oath Salvagers combo. <laughs> Bomberman. Yep. <laughs> yep. Second place, Robert Green on Grixis Control. Third place, Sullivan Brophy on Dredge. Fourth place, Paul Mastriano on Hangerback Agro Workshops. Fifth place, Mike Herbig on Mentor. Sixth place, Rich Shea on Hangerback Agro Workshops. Seventh place, John Gridzina on Jeskai Control. Which was a, a Planeswalker Control deck? With Moat, yes. yes. And eighth place, Ryan Ebert Hart on Jeskai Delver. Traditional Pyro Delver with White for Plows, yep. pretty much. Yep, yep, yep. So how, so how do you think we stacked up against that? Topic? Well, overall, we were very close. Both of us agreed that the floor on workshops was two, and there was exactly two. Both of us agreed the floor on dredge. But I also mentioned that I, although I did say I thought there would be three workshops, the ninth place deck was workshops. <laughs> yeah, more on ninth through 16th and 32 later. You're, you're exactly correct. And we both agreed the floor on dredge was one, and there was one. Sullivan Brophy, the winner of the NYSE Open. We also agreed that the rest of the non-workshop and dredge lists would be blue-based lists, and that was definitely true. We've got a Jeskai control and a Grixis control, a Mentor, a Delver, and then Brian Kelly's difficult-to-categorize Bomberman Oath list. Now, we did both say that we didn't think Oath was going to make the top eight, which is comically wrong in one sense, given that Brian won, but I believe that at the time, you and I were both envisioning what was a current standard oath list, a bug style right. with three gristle right. brands and two or two to four show and tells. 
that's the kind of oath we were both saying wouldn't make top eight this year. In the most technical sense, we were 100% wrong uh-huh. and that oath made top eight and we both predicted zero. But as you're saying, it's also true that in terms of in our classification schema, schema oath, Brian Kelly is playing oath, but not the oath deck that we had envisioned or were, were talking about when we talked about it. Yeah. Brian Kelly is, plays, in our perspective, a Brian Kelly deck, <laughs> not an oath deck. <laughs> it's, it's, it both defies classification in terms of standard sort of taxonomies because it's both a Bomberman and an oath deck. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, and that's why many people actually call him Brian Kelly decks. And we had a long discussion in the last podcast in our preview about Brian Kelly. And I will go on record saying, <laughs> you know, it's actually interesting, Kevin, you at one point said, I'd like to normalize Montolio out mm-hmm. of the TGO data. And but by that, you meant that an individual, because they were represented in multiple events, actually has a disproportionate weight in terms of projecting a metagame. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, in a tournament with in a single tournament metagame, a person can only be represented once. But in aggregate tournament metagame, people can be individuals can be represented multiple times. Well, there's a parallel point that I was making about Brian Kelly, and the, I believe the phrase I used, and I'm very happy no one called me out about it, <laughs> and I'm going to put myself on blast here. I said I believe the Brian Kelly decks will wash out, and that's a, what I meant by that. By wash out is that there's only one Brian Kelly at this event, so <laughs> there can only be a limited. There's a cap on the number of Brian Kellys in this event. <laughs> Uh, it, so Brian Kelly decks, I think, were, I think I was definitely right in predicting they would be a tiny percentage of the metagame, but of course, you know, wrong in the sense that, um, you know, if you were trying to win this event, you would obviously have to beat Brian Kelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, and this, so there's the, there's the letter of our predictions and then the spirit. We got the letter wrong, clearly. But the spirit of how yeah. Oath would likely not succeed at this event in making Absolutely yeah correct. and making the penetration into the top eight or even the top tables really uh, that proved to be definitely correct. Was twenty fifth. Yeah, I mean the next play, highest placing Oath deck was twenty fifth place. Yeah. So so it wasn't even in the top twenty. I, I will I will just add a little asterisk to that, which is that Luis Scott Vargas <laughs> was apparently X and one when he dropped. I guess he scooped the dredge player by reports and dropped to go run to the to the um to the airport. Uh, to the airport and he was playing oath so there was a very good chance that had he won his next round he of course would have been top eight and we would have been completely wrong again but in any case so we're, we're wrong in the technical sense that oath made top eight but we're all we're right in the sense that the way we were defining oath was more of a traditional oath list meaning more like fenton oath or some variant thereof mm-hmm. we were not speaking about brian kelly decks because brian kelly decks are in a classification scheme of last episode brian kelly decks not yeah and brian's success is in large part attributed to the the way that his deck sidesteps a lot of the weaknesses of traditional oath which we'll talk about in more detail later later. but i just want to add this as well this is not an ex post facto rationalization (laughs) our discussion of oath one of the points i made was that the discrepancy between oath's performance on magic online and real life was in no small part because of the number of brian kelly oath decks (laughs) fair enough Piloted by Brian Kelly. <laughs> I just want to say that overall, I thought your prediction was probably more accurate than mine, Kevin, because I I was more confident that we would have. I thought it, that we would have a minimum of three shops, and I thought there was a very good chance we would have two dredge. And we we're very close on having three shops. I could have been easily right about that. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I just wanted to point this out, and actually, let's just play this clip right now. The metagame is so hard to pin to put sort of you know define 
in a very particular set of ways that I think that there are so many possibilities. It's actually a little bit overwhelming. So let me just make a couple examples. One, I'll make two examples beyond the fact that I think Dredge is on a huge is about to have a huge surge. One example is you just talked about the lack of time vault decks, right, mm-hmm. Kevin? But just the second to last um, most recent 4.0 was Grixis Control. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's an opening for time vault decks for the first time in God in a year and a half, two years. Yeah. I wonder if there's really a space for those strategies um, in a way that there really hasn't been. I'm not saying there are. I'm saying it's possible because that deck was preyed on by more than anything else. These Delver decks that just basically disappeared to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Second point, Oath, right? I mean, Oath of Druids won Vintage Championship last year. Looks like it's, you know, in your sample size, it's still like 10% of the top eights. Mine, it's like <laughs> 1%. <laughs> it's 1 out of 31. Yeah. Um, but that's a strategy that I think, as we saw, that the two Oath decks that top forward were very streamlined, and they both hinged on preordain, right? Mm-hmm. At least the winner had four preordain. Yep. And so I, I think that... Um, what I'm trying to say is this is a very difficult metagame, not just to prepare for, but to predict. That's the key point I'm trying to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of possibilities for things to happen. So if you told me that Grixis Control won the tournament, I would not be surprised. Now, it seems very improbable, but there's a rationale behind that sort of thing, right? Sure. Grixis Control has been down for years. It's one of the naturally most powerful strategies in the format. It makes sense that it's been ignored. It's at its lowest ebb, that it would surge and, and appear. So one of the things I was trying to say in there is that I was really trying to make two points. One was that the metagame was really amazing, and we're going to talk about the metagame in a second, in that I think the diversity of options that people had was incredibly broad. But the other point I was trying to make is that I saw a specific opening for a Grixis control deck with Time Vault. And, you know, maybe I should have been a little bit more forceful about that. I seriously considered one as well up in the last minute. But what's interesting is the second place deck, which we'll talk about in more detail, had some really unique card decisions that I think um, exemplified the dynamic I was describing, where Mark Lenigra type person puts together the right sort of combination of Weissman-esque solutions for the metagame and really, you know, does very very well. Mm-hmm. So I, he deserved a lot of credit, and, and Josh Rabbits wasn't far behind him at 10th place with a very similar list. But we'll talk about that later, but I just think it's important to note that although I didn't predict Oath would make top 8, a traditional Oath deck, in that little clip that we just played, I identified two possible decks I think could have surprised us. And in fact, they ended up being first and second place. Nicely done. So, so I think you were overall very accurate in your predictions, more so than me. So if we're scoring, keeping, <laughs> keeping, keeping score at home, I think you, you won that prediction. But let's move on to the metagame. Well, our metagame predictions, there's no two ways about it. We were just simply very spot on in these predictions. You and I both agreed on workshops as a whole would be 20 to 25% of the metagame. And as a whole, they were 22%. Right. Let's let's pause there for a second because that's really interesting. So I heard, I, I think I heard Brian Kelly said that he, they, him and his team predicted 18% shops. It might have been Danny Batterman saying that that, that on behalf of their uh, their testing group. And, you know, it's interesting because I felt very good about our prediction of 20 to 25% workshops. They tend to always show up in those ratios that at the NYSE. But had I known that there was going to be almost 500 people, I would have ranged it downward a bit. Mm. So the fact that there were how many total workshops were in this event? Again, it was 100. Exactly 100? No, 102. 102? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's incredible. That's 400 and some workshops in the room. 
that is, I mean, that's a non-trivial number of them in existence. <laughs> well, and to our point from the prior show, you were speculating based on economies and various other logistical factors that workshops might actually be underrepresented in paper magic. Exactly right. And this, and to have it, uh, this event, <laughs> you're right, to scale up a 20 to 25% workshop representation to 462 players is, that's an achievement almost in terms of pulling together paper cards to play with. Yeah, I mean, our predictions for this event, we both said there'd be a 380 some players, yeah. but we wouldn't be surprised if there was more than 400. The fact that it smashed our prediction meant that if I, again, if we had thought it would be that many people, there's no way, would you have predicted over 20% in a 480 player? No, I think I wouldn't have, it would not have occurred to me, but after you said it, I would have probably said, yeah, you're right. That the odds of a proportional increase in workshop players seems unlikely, but I'll tell you what, we might have offsetting factors here though. We might have that factor at play, but also the factor of how good workshops are right now going in the other direction. Because as we observed before, the likes of Rich Shea, Paul Mastriano, Brian DeMars, these old school blue control players switching to workshops is bolstering the number in the other direction too. That's a very good point. In any case, it's a remarkable fact that there was exactly, what was the exact percentage? 22. 22%, and we said 20 to 25%, (laughs) so we responded. Yeah, we were. Now, the next thing we discussed was Dredge. Dredge was a little harder to pin down. We cited the NYSE results at about 4%. You said you thought it would be higher than that. You said it'd probably be at 7.5 maybe. I said, okay, maybe maybe 7 to 10 range. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, I thought that 10 was wildly optimistic because even though Dredge has been doing very well and this event tends to have more budget players and therefore more Dredge players, mm-hmm. 10% of the room of a 400-player event, which is, you know, that's still like 40 Dredge decks. That's a lot of Dredge. I, I thought maybe like 8% or so would be the cap. So I, it's actually a very surprising fact that we had. Go ahead, you can tell them how many we had. 11%. Which was there were in the room, there were 50. 50. Exactly 50 dredge decks. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. <laughs> That's really incredible. Now, what's unfortunate is that we do not have a breakdown of what those dredge decks look like. Jake has said he's going to try and get to that some some point in the near future. But we don't know, for example, how many of those dredge decks have transformative sideboards or the full you know complement of pitch spells, counter magic that we talked about yeah. and covered. Um, we just we just don't know. Uh, but we, but to have 11 percent of the of the environment be dredges is a testament, I think, to its success in recent events. Absolutely. We do know, of course, that Sullivan Brophy's dredge list, which is a more I don't know if I would say traditional, but a more mainstream five-color land, undiscovered paradise base with main deck Leyline of the Void and and the typical removal suite in the sideboard, Wisp Mare, Nature's Claim, Ingatchur. He added Barbarian Ring, which is a nice little bit of technology, especially against Containment Priest. But his is a little bit more of a traditional, non-transformative approach. Yeah, strategically traditional. I mean, it, it, un, unconventional in some tactical respects, yep. but traditional in strategic orientation. Yep. Right. At any rate, so I was a little bit closer on my dredge prediction at 7 to 10 when there was actually 11%. Still pretty close overall. The next category we discussed, which is an aggregate of several different things, is blue-based control decks. You and I both agreed on 30 to 35% for blue-based control. And given that it's a little difficult and a little... We meant, non, we meant non-gush. Absolutely, there. non-gush. Given it's a little bit difficult to categorize all the different possibilities here, according to my research and according to Jayco's assessment, the two, the two categories that make up blue-based control are pure control and combo control. So you've got your, right. you've got your land still on the pure control spectrum. You've got your combo control on the, the Grixis kind of spectrum. 
but the combination of those two was 15.2 and 18.6. So we were pretty spot on, just over 33%. 55%, that's almost right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So we got the blue base control estimate pretty spot on. After that, the next biggest category to discuss, I guess, is gush. That's another, yeah. another area where you and I were in pretty close alignment we both agreed that Mentor and Delver, the two biggest pillars that make up this category, would both be in the 5 to 10% range, and that combined they would be in the in the 10 to 15% range. You said 12 to 15. I said 12 to 15. You said 10 to 15. Yeah. So what was the actual number? In total, blue-based, now we're calling those agro-control decks in this categorization. Delver, yeah. yeah. That, but that excludes fish. We're just talking about Mentor, Pyromancer, Delver. I need to I need to uh, comment on that exact thing. So the agro control blue combination was 18% in total, but that includes merfolk. So you got to you got to back merfolk out of that number because it's not gush based, of course. So merfolk were 4.8%, 18 minus 4.8 means we're 13.5%, which is right within our range that we predicted in the 12 to 15. So another another pretty spot on prediction. Yeah, that couldn't be that almost couldn't be more accurate. <laughs> right. So we're getting good at these numbers. There is one number that we were not very good at, though, and that was Oath. Now, it seems to me that, and we can talk about this a little bit more, but it seems to me that a few more people brought Oath to this event thinking that it was going to be successful against workshops. That's a, a broad generalization. What was our predictions on Oath? Well, I don't have my own number here, but you predicted 6.5%, and I think I was in agreement with approximately that. What was the actual number? The actual number was 9.7%. That's not terribly far off. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's... I mean, it's Percentage-wise, it is per, you know, yeah. per, uh, off, you know, forty percent off. But in the overall scheme of the meta game, that's not a terrible prediction. Six and a half to nine seven. What that points to, in my opinion, though, is a bit of a bit of perception uncertainty in terms of the efficacy of oath. Because as we observed in our prior episode, there, it's, it was not highly represented in recent events, but it had a couple of top eight, top eight performances in paper, and it was almost entirely absent or a non-factor online. And those kind of conflicting results means it's a little bit hard to zero in on how people will perceive the deck going into a large event and how people who are studying using Magic Online, which I believe to be a significant portion, will perceive such a deck. We know that a handful of pros, specifically Luis Scott Vargas, chose the deck and he was doing quite well with it. And we also know that the the variant, the Brian Kelly version, obviously won the event. So there's kind of a really broad spectrum of results for Oath and a few more people brought it to the event than we expected. We might have also, I'm, in my calculation, I mean, 10% is a huge amount of the field. One of the things that I noticed in our previous podcast is we sort of had some disagreement on where things would cluster. Mm -hmm. You have the view that there a lot of the archetypes would cluster between 5 and 10%. Yep. People might not remember this, but for Star City Games, I used to do metagame analysis for Legacy events. So Star City Games would send me all their SC, the, the SCG Opens, which became their 5Ks, and now they're called SCG Opens. There were 5Ks. And in fact, Wizards sent me the GP Madrid, which is the legacy decks that were like, it was the largest legacy, uh, largest GP event by far, and it was like 2,300 deck lists, <laughs> and I had to organize the whole metagame. And combing through legacy and vintage event data, I became very much appreciative at how many archetypes really, a few archetypes break 10%, and how many really cluster close to five, if not the right below mm -hmm. it. So, you know, I, I just feel like when people say it's going to be like 10% dredge, 10% oath, I often feel like that that's the, just a heuristic. It's a way of, I don't know exactly how to put this, but 
to me, those kinds of predictions speak of, you know, they're well-meaning and they're often close, but not really precise. You know what I mean? They're they're just, in other words, when people tell me, oh, I think the metagame is going to be like 30% shop, 30% this, 10% dredge. So I tend to think, you know, that's not a very precise prediction. Mm -hmm. And in generally, the the lack of precision is that people are over-predicting certain appearances. So if you told me that 10% of the vintage champs field would be oath, I would have said, that doesn't seem realistic at all. I mean, it doesn't just seem empirically accurate. But in fact, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think I think part of what I should have calculated into that is that the last tournament was won by Oath. So a lot of players who probably just showed up without a lot of knowledge probably would have been inclined to play Oath. You know, mm-hmm. it's a it's a easy I'm not gonna say it's an easier deck to play, but it's a deck that people who don't have a lot of knowledge in the environment and the format often pick up as an entry deck to the format. So I may have discounted that too much as well. Well, we'll have to watch out for that next year. But to your point about individual deck breakdowns, there are, according to Jayco's categorizations, and I I can't disagree with them, there are fully 50 different archetypes in this breakdown for the event. Now, granted, the last, say, 15 to 20 of them are have single pilots. There was one pilot on the late lines deck, for example, one pilot on hermit druid combo. <laughs> so you, you, there, was, there was an infect deck. There was more than one infect deck. There were two infect decks. Yes. There were two players on elves, for example. So once you get past a little bit of the noise of, of people playing a fun deck or a pet deck, perhaps there's still, there are still of- fully 20 archetypes that had at least 1% of the field in them. That is five players. Well, let's, let's, let's pause on that for a second, because I think what this event demonstrates to all who were there and then people who are paying attention to the format is that vintage is awesome right now. <laughs> the vintage metagame is diverse. There are a lot of viable decks. And then there are a lot of not just viable strategies, but a lot of top options that people can take to try and seriously compete. And I wouldn't have said that a couple months ago. I felt pretty you know, people's feelings towards the format ebb and flow, but a couple of months ago I felt much more down on the format in terms of I felt like things were just consolidating around mentor decks, shop decks, maybe one other thing. But having experienced this, prepared for it, and now looking at it, the aftermath, I don't think there's a question that if people, you know, what makes that it's a diverse format, there are a lot of viable options, and what makes a format fun is just that, a diversity of options. And you know, that's a key element to what makes a format exciting and enjoyable. And so I think Vintage, by all accounts right now, is really in great shape. Don't you think, Kevin? I'd like to point to just the archetype breakdown of the top eight, which, according to our estimates and according to reality, I think is almost a perfect microcosm of the format and what you're talking about. Workshops are ever-present. There are two workshops in the top eight. But the two workshop decks that made the top eight are new builds. They're fresh builds for this tournament. They're not just Martello, as we've come to maybe rely on the default definition of shops being martello and that's not that's not the case it's still the most popular single archetype by a long shot but the simple truth is two workshop decks represent the archetype as a whole but these are new builds this hangerback aggro deck that paul and rich made top eight with okay so there's that there's dredge which as we said there's a floor on how much dredge you're probably going to see in this top eight and sure enough it's a relatively tactically traditional build, as we've said, but that means it's still good and viable in the environment. And you have to respect it. Blue-based decks are the rest, which means they are the majority, but there's a lot of diversity in them. And to your point, there are actually two somewhat unique or newish decks in the blue-based category in this top eight. 
Brian Kelly's oath list we've talked about, and we'll talk about more later. That's a demonstration of what a player who takes a creative approach, understands the weaknesses of many pressure points in the metagame, and, and someone like that can uh, capitalize on them, which is what Brian did. But also, I'd like to point to John Gridzina's Just Guy Moat Control deck that got seventh place. Now, John didn't make it out of the, the quarterfinals, but his list is still something that is not mainstream in the format. Moat is getting a little bit of press lately. It's kind of it's kind of a flashy card, given how expensive it is and unusual it is. But the other thing about his deck is the number of Planeswalkers is the most we've seen, I think, in a tie-placing vintage deck. So I hear you saying a bunch of things. Let me just try and extract the key points. I think one one thing you're saying is that not only is there a diversity of options, but really, strategically, almost every strategic approach is represented. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's really not in this top eight is... I guess what you call traditional storm combo. Yep. We have a hard control deck. We have the combo, you know, in terms of that John's deck. Real, you know, with moat. I mean, that, that's as that's as Weissman-esque as you can get, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a throwback to the deck. We have a sort of traditional Grixis combo control deck with the Tinker Yawgmoss Will Time Ball. We have the the you know, representation of Delver, Delver and Pyromancer, and then the uh, the newer version of that with Mentor. We have Dredge Shops. I mean, it's all here. Mm-hmm. It's here it's it's a complete strategic diversity and and of course brian kelly's deck is a hybrid in so many different kinds of ways the second point i heard you saying is that the the top eight is incorporated new decks and that's also a sign of new cards that's a sign of a healthy format a format that incorporates new printings quickly and well and hangerback walker is in here and i think there are other cards as well the the third point i heard you saying is that you know and this was the first thing that you said, is that workshops... The way that I would characterize Vintage right now is that... I'm not sure if this will hold up under empirical scrutiny, (laughs) but this is my understanding. Workshop kind of provides the... Right now is the fundamental sort of building block of the format. That all the decks in the format are in some way reacting to workshops. And what I I think was really troubling a few months ago, I felt like workshops were so strong, so powerful, so oppressive, that it was really hard for decks to compete. But I think what we've seen is that all the decks that made it into this top eight had to have some game against shops. So all the strategies in the format have in some ways adapted to the dominance of shops and have adjusted. And so I think what we're seeing is the blossoming of a format with that understanding as the central principle, central organizing principle of this format structure. I think you're, I agree with you, but there are those who would say that there is still not enough diversity in what you can do in vintage. And I think a lot of that is demonstrated by the omnipresence of Dak Faden in the format. The Dak Faden is in the first and second and fifth and seventh and well, eighth place decks in this top eight. <laughs> well, I think that goes to the, the last point I just made, which is that if you can't compete with shops, you can't play them this, in this, this playground. Yeah. And I think Dak Faden is zero. And more to that point, if you look a little further down in the standings, of all the the blue-based control decks that were that had 22 points or more in the final standings, there are 29 total decks in that category. 16 of them were blue. 13 of that 16, 81% have Dak Faden in the main deck. And all but one of those, 13, to also 12 of the 16, have either Ingot Chewer or Ancient Grudge in, in a combination of main and side. So... You are correct in that if you want to come to the table in Vintage, there is basically a minimum of of hate you have to have for workshops in order to succeed. Right. And all of these right. top I mean, blue decks have demonstrated that. I think people who are complaining about the format or concerned about the format, like myself, complaining like Mike Solimasi or others <laughs> like that, 
you know, we're responding in some respect to the you know concerns around shops and shops. I mean, there were some serious discussions about restrictions in the last couple of months. But I think this demonstrates that the metagame has can adapt and it has. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't again. All metagames, all vintage metagames need some organizing principle. Historically, it's often been reacting to blue decks. So, you know, back in 1995, Brian and I had two main deck red elemental blasts, you know, as a reaction to the present, the centrality of blue deck. Blue decks are no longer the set. I mean, they're the largest component of the vintage metagame, but that's simply a matter of math. There are only five colors in Magic. Blue's the best. And you can build decks with... It's not hard to build decks with blue. You know, you can build four-color decks, and it's very easy to play blue. So it's not about the presence of blue. It's about workshop decks are the center of the vintage magic. That every, de- every deck in the format that's viable has some built-in strategy for doing And also, to the point specifically about workshops, we just can't emphasize enough how important, how significant it is, and we're going to talk a little more later, that the two workshop decks in the top eight are not the predominant variation of workshops. They are not Martello. And we haven't said it yet, I don't think, on the show, but... Out of all the individual breakdown decks in the format, Martello was the individual deck that was most highly represented at 11.9% of the metagame was specifically Martello. What percentage of workshop decks were Martello? Because we, in our previous podcast, we said about 60% of the ones in the top eight. It, it was just over half. There were 55 Martellos out of 102 total workshop decks. That, which is pretty close to what we predicted. Yep, exactly. But... Martello was actually third in terms of 22 or 24 point penetration in the tournament out of the various workshop derivations. Hangerback Aggro and Terra Nova both performed better in terms of putting players at the top tables at the end of the event. Interesting. Before we delve too much into that, I, let's linger on this. Let's actually address this point about the workshop dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not only is workshops the central, what I call central organizing principle, but it's also clear that the workshop decks that performed well, the Hangerbacks, the Arcbound Ravager, all that, you know, both Paul and Paul and Brian's deck and then Rich's deck on the other side, those decks clearly preyed on the workshop mirror, mm-hmm. which both reinforces my first point, but then also points to another dynamic. You know, I don't remember where I read this, but I've read about these sort of evolutionary spirals that happen in biology, evolutionary biology, and maybe also they probably happen in business. But what you sometimes get is you get these competitive dynamics that spin out of the, the environment. Like, I'm, I can't even begin to remember where I read this and just popped in my mind, but I think I remember reading somewhere about a competition between dung beetles and evolutionary spiral <laughs> where dung beetles were competing with each other to get larger and larger mandibles, but it, it evolutionary costs. The point is that there was this spiral between them that caused some other competitor to just swoop in and, and defeat them with some Trump Trump like burrowing or something. But the point is that what we're, we're seeing a similar pattern with, with workshop. And I think we saw a similar pattern with mentor, which was part of the problem with Mm-hmm. In the workshop case, you've got this dynamic where the workshop variants that perform best in the environment are the workshop decks that beat the workshop mirror. That's what Rich, Brian, and Paul played with maxing out on Ravagers, maxing out on Hangerbacks. In Brian, in, in Rich's case, he ran Trikes, so it was more like E-Robots. In Paul and Brian's case, it was their own brew. But what you notice is that those decks made a trade-off. They had fewer Sphere Effects main deck. Rich's deck didn't even have Sphere of Resistance at all. Um, and so that trade-off makes you wonder, is that an opening for more decks to prey on them? So yes, they win the Workshop Mirrors, but was, and I also wonder if that was sort of trade-off that other workshop players were unwilling to make. The other thing is, I mean, it's a similar dynamic with respect to Mentor, right? You play Mentor to beat the Pyromancer decks, but then you're weak to other things. 
So you get these kind of like, I don't know you call them, evolutionary spirals where, where these competitive races between certain things spin off from the overall ecosystem, and they can be really destructive to both of the competitors in there. So, you know, let me just frame this a little bit more. In the last podcast, we said, at least I said, that I thought that the results from the Vintage Championship would frame and redefine and consolidate the metagame. And although that's what I predicted, and that's happened in the past, I don't think that's actually what's happened here. I think what's happened here is that we have a clearer view of the metagame, but it's like viewing it as it's in motion. Mm-hmm. That it's like it's like a, a um, you know it's the derivative or whatever. It's it's we're seeing something that is already in move. It's moving in a direction, and so what we have right here is not where the metagame is going to be, but where it was as it's in moving towards this other place. And so I'm I'm saying a couple things. I'm saying one, I wonder if it, how this workshop dynamic is going to fully play out, and I think that the move towards the hanger back list presents some real tactical weaknesses that can be exploited by cards like Herbal's and also that, um, you know, that aren't represented in this event. But also I wonder what that means for the other workshop decks out there who have to face, you know, the fact that they're just completely disadvantaged against these strategies. Let me stop and see what you have to say. I agree with your overall assessment here. I firmly believe, and this is born out of testing specifically with Brian before this event, I firmly believe a couple of things happened. One is that <laughs> it's going to be fun to see our report card on Magic Origins because I was obviously more in favor of Hangerback Walker than you were during our review, but even I did not assess it to be as good as it actually is represented in this event. So there's that. Uh, I'm going to win that bet, I'm certain, because of the just the numbers are going to be, because I took the over on Hangerback Walker, but my number is going to be, I think, pretty far off when time comes. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that I, I firmly believe that what you've said is absolutely true about specifically Paul and Brian's Hangerback Walker aggro build. I think it's better in the mirror. I think that's why they liked it. I also think that the card Arcbound Ravager represents a nexus of things. It represents specifically being good against Dak Faden, and it represents specifically being good with Hangerback Walker, which made it a natural inclusion. And good in the mirror. Yeah, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I think is going on, too, is there's a bit of an information war at play. Let's, Let's break down the workshop decks. The top four workshop archetypes or the fact four archetypes that include Mishra's workshop are Martello with 55 more than half the next one was Hangerback Aggro with 11 so that's Paul and Brian our friend John Johnson and I don't know how many others and Rich Shea so there's four that I know of and then seven other folks next was Terranova with seven which Terranova is a bit of a retro list by today's standards it's actually I think it's a little outmoded in the modern metagame but some people still like it then there were our workshop specialists, the Farino brothers and Nick Detweiler, on what they're calling Terra Nouveau, which is maybe a stand-in title for now, but it's a slightly tweaked version of Terra Nova that features a couple of technological advances, Jarksteel Juggernaut, Main Deck Tabernacle, uh, Ravager, I think, a few other things. There are only the three of them on that list. So what we've got is a major portion of the, the workshop groups still playing Martello, some innovators on Hangerback Aggro and Terra Nouveau, and 
the hangerback aggro decks, I think were better positioned against everyone else in the workshop family. And what I think though, from an information standpoint, what I was getting at is that the hangerback aggro deck was not a mystery going into the event. No. Paul and Brian both won buys at Gen Con and their lists were made public. Their lists were made public and promoted even. And promoted. That's right. We talked about it. They were talked about in Brian's articles. This is not a mystery. People, I think, were slow to adapt. But Rich Shea's deck was also published in the MTGO results with Hangerback Walker. Yep. So he, his was public as well. I think I think people, broadly speaking, were slow to react to the, the recent changes in workshop technology. And I think all these Martello players, like it or not, a lot of them were left on the outside looking in when the top eight came. Well, let's, let's talk about this for a second. About I think, first of all, Hiromichi Itao was also one of these people who played, he played, I believe, two, uh, he played two Hangerback Walkers main deck. So you've got four traditional blue pilots. Hiromichi Itao, 26th place. Paul Mastriano, right. top eight. Rich Shea, top eight. And Brian DeMar is ninth place. I'm sorry, Steve. I, I need to interject. I need to correct myself. I completely misrepresented Stacks being the second most popular workshop archetype at 16. Thank you for mentioning Hiromichi, who was playing with Smokestacks. Well, the, the, the point I'm, I want to make, though, is that four of the best performing workshop players in the environment were traditional blue players. Mm-hmm. Not not the, you know, the traditional workshop pilots that you would expect, like Roland Chang, the Farino brothers, Nick Detweiler, you know, the the tried and true adherence to the archetype. And I'd like to just pause and just talk about that. This is I don't want to make it a criticism of, of the workshop players, nor a look how look how great the blue players did. But <laughs> I think there may be a causal dynamic. Let me play Malcolm Gladwell here for a second and try and see you know, amateur sociologists, see if I can identify what's what's happening. I would like to pause it for you that uh, two possible dynamics here. One, that the, the traditional workshop pilots, the Freener Brothers and so on and so forth, may have been all working together. You know, And if they work together, they probably came to some conclusion, uh, they came to a metagame decision that ultimately proved not to be correct, right? And we can at least, you know, if correct is maybe too strong of a word, right. but let me just say, you know, it was not as successful as the alternative. I think that... Um, that may have been a harmful strategic choice. That is, diversity can sometimes prove stronger than because it gives you an array of options, right? Like you're not just looking for the... the in other words, I think, you under, I think you understand what I'm getting at here, but I wonder if some sort of groupthink may have harmed their chances, Where, it, but by the same token, it's interesting to note that these four blue players were at least working together, working separately, right? At least Brian and Paul working together, but Rich was not consulting with Brian and Paul, mm-hmm. and Hiramichi and Tao certainly was not. Mm-hmm. Yet they came to similar conclusions about Hangerback Walker, and they all did really well. So I wonder if there's another thing going on, which is, in some way, was their strength, meaning their experience and, and so forth with workshop, was that a, a, a disadvantage in this environment? And I wonder, I wonder, here, here's the second point I was going to get at. So the first was sort of about groupthink, but I also wonder if, if and this goes back to something else I was saying earlier about the organizing principle of the format being workshops. If because they are traditionally workshop pilots, they're used to working in environments that are predominantly defined by blue decks, whereas the blue players playing workshops came with a different set of operating assumptions that the environment is primarily defined by workshops, not blue decks. <laughs> and therefore, their sort of background contextual assumptions were stronger and therefore suited their design choices and play choices better. I wonder if that, and I strongly suspect that one or both of those things played out. 
what do you think of my little armchair sociologist? <laughs> I that certainly seems like it could have been a contributing factor, perhaps a significant one. Uh, I could speak directly to my experience again with testing with Brian that I believe what you've postulated about the potential of coming from the perspective of a blue player constructing a workshop deck. I observed the things you're suggesting in his decision-making and his behavior. He was definitely looking to shore up weaknesses that he perceived in the workshop archetype from the get-go. And and he was I, I, I believe that he was open-minded. He looked at a whole bunch of different things. He tested a lot of different things. I believe that he was open to Hangerback Walker as soon as it was spoiled, basically. And I think he started slow with it and realized how good it was after testing, development, and tournament experience. So my firsthand knowledge of working with Brian specifically would seem to reinforce what you're saying. Also, the converse, which is the Farino Detweiler trilogy and their their Terra Nouveau list. And Chang, yeah. And Chang, yeah. But I don't think Roland played Terra Nouveau, though. I mean, so I'm talking specifically about this list. I think that list was attempting to attack the metagame from a very specific standpoint. They were focused on Tabernacle and its efficacy in numerous matchups. They had this Darksteel Juggernaut technology, which they could main deck with the Tabernacle. There's a nice interaction there. But I think, I I can't speak to their testing because I was not involved with that, nor did I talk to them. But I can tell you that tactically, Darksteel Juggernaut matches up very poorly with Hangerback Walker. Oh, that's exactly right. (laughs) And I don't know how many of them played each other, but the point is, is I think that their approach was tactically, a little bit tactically weak. I think what you said is what I was trying to drive at. So I did actually sit next to Nick several times during the tournament, and he at one point complained that he prepared his deck for Mentor Delver mm-hmm. decks, Mentor Paramentor environment, and he hadn't played any of them yet. And and you know this Tabernacle, Darksteel Juggernaut, so on and so forth. I think what it speaks to is the point that I make, which is that if you're a traditional workshop deck, your your experience is grounded in vintage environments where blue is the center centerpiece of the format. And they, I think, attack the format by trying to attack Delver and Mentor decks. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a strategic, I don't want to say mistake, but maybe a, this is a, a disadvantage. A disadvantage, yeah. maybe not the optimal calibration. Whereas mm-hmm. the blue players who played workshops, Hiramichi Tell, Brian DeMars, Paul Mastron, or Rich Shea, they attacked the format by attacking the workshop mirror, first and foremost, and then calibrated the rest of their deck, trying to optimize the workshop mirror and then the rest of the field next. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was the right approach. I, I could be overstating it, but I think that's what's going on. So if you look at the decks in the top, I mean, it's clear in the top 32 deck list, which we have on Internal Central, most of them are hangerback decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the uh, sorry, the... Um, Obviously, Hiramichi Tao at 26 places hanger back, uh, but... His is categorized uh, as stacks, though. Right. The 21st place deck, Chris Wilcock, is three hanger backs. Mm-hmm. The, um, the 19th place deck has two hanger backs. The uh, 18th place deck has four hanger backs and, and Ravagers. You know, this could be overstated, but my sense is that... Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe their deck was completely well-designed for the mirror. But when I see when I see uh, two null rods... and So it's hard to assess without the deck. Yeah. List, but I'm speculating at this point. I've, I made this point, so I'm not going to you know drive it in the ground. But the point is that I think that the blue players design workshop decks more for the workshop mirrors than the workshop players did. Yeah. That's my that's my basic premise. Well, we'll see if this trend continues. Right. And and again, what it is what does it mean for players going forward? What it means is that players who players who either adopt 
the decks that Rich, Brian, Paul, Hiromichi, others play need to be careful. They need to be careful because the more they play in this evolutionary spiral off, the more vulnerable they may become to, to tactics that would, are not typically played in vintage, but could or may easily arise as a response to this event, like Hercules Recall. Mm-hmm. I think Hercules Recall, if anything, is the biggest winner in this event. Don't you think? <laughs> well, I personally could not support that position any better. I played against Nick Detweiler not too long after you talked to him, and he said he hadn't played any mentor players yet. <laughs> he and I faced each other in round eight in the X and two bracket, hoping to make eight and, make eight and two and get some prizes. And I was playing mentor, and he was playing Terra Nouveau. And our games featured a game one, which I am a heavy underdog in, and he won. No surprise there. A game two in which I was on the play with a very early mentor and a force of will, and I just ran him over. And a game three that went very, very long without either of us doing anything very constructive. Because what happened was I had turn one Black Lotus Mentor land Grafdigger's Cage on on the draw, but I had forced his turn one Thorn. So I made a a Mentor and a, a Monk on the first turn with one land in play. He proceeded to play with just an, just an ancient tomb in play. On his second turn, he proceeded to play Tabernacle. So his whole second, and he didn't play anything else, his whole second turn was just playing Tabernacle to try and tap me down and get rid of a monk. That the, that game dragged on for another dozen turns. Very strange mana draws, him with two ancient t- tombs and a, two factories. Me with, I ended up with just planes and mountain in play for a very long period of time and only blue cards in my hand. But the funny thing is, is that his tabernacle technology was simultaneously highly effective at keeping my army down, but also it stunted his growth significantly in that he basically spent his whole second turn playing it and therefore not disrupting my spellcasting ability. And I just think that ultimately right. their strategy of tabernacle against the metagame was was just disadvantageous in the long run. I don't yeah. I don't think tabernacle is enough to hang your head on. I mean, it was a big gambit, and it was a gambit that definitely would have paid off if, if this was an environment in which the Mentor and Pyromancer decks were at the heart of mm-hmm. it. But that was the environment five months ago, yeah. not 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 at this event. And there's a co- so do you, do you go ahead. sorry. There's a corollary to the point you were making earlier about people picking up the these newest and latest hangerback aggro decks and being careful with their positioning. The other corollary is people trying to fight those decks from the blue perspective. You need to understand right. how these decks have have mitigated the efficacy of Dak Faden and Ingot Chewer, and that's what you're getting at with right. Hercules Recalls. Hercules Recall is a tried and true method. Which I've never, which I've never gotten away from, but a lot of people have. Right. So just to be clear about this, the the typical tactics that have often been most effective, certainly in Gautour, but things like Trigon Predator, Ancient Grudge, are much less effective against these ta- against Ravager and and Hangerback mm-hmm. Walker. Whereas you basically need a Hercules uh, or a Dak the thing before something's destroyed. Yep. Um, yep. So so what do you think about my point that that the ex- the strength you know to put it in again Glad- Malcolm Gladwell terms, your strength is a weakness, right? Your strength here being deep, rich years of experience with Workshop is actually the disadvantage, whereas being the blue pilot, playing Workshop, converting to Workshop is actually the strength in, for this particular event. I think it's legitimate. I think it's that aspect combined with the printing of Hangerback Walker, which allowed these traditional blue pilots who were maybe coming at things with a fresh perspective to not be biased for or against, I guess, the Hangerback Walker, but 
uh, to be open to new printings to bolster what they were learning about the archetype as they developed it. I think it's probably a combination of those things and a few others. And in the group think within the NYSE stacks people probably didn't help. Yeah, well, the constrictor. <laughs> they've uh, they have been traditionally successful with that archetype as a whole. So I don't want to yeah. I don't want to uh, discredit the group think so to speak of that particular group. But I, I mean, right. what these things happen. You make a metagame call, and sometimes it's not right for the event that shows up. Well, I mean, that's the problem with groupthink. Is groupthink, if you make the right call, it's enormously successful. Mm-hmm. It pays off. It spades. But if you make the wrong call, then everyone suffers. Yeah. So well, I don't want to speak for them, but you know, that's that may have been the case in this particular tournament. Steve, you've we've hit on it a couple of times here. We've talked about the most popular decks, Martello being the the most sing, the most individually popular archetype. The next up was Dredge at 10.8%, right. 50 participants, which we've already talked about as well, how, how relatively large that is. We talked about Oath. The fourth individual archetype was Mentor, Yeah. which I would not have called. I would have called Delver being more popular than Mentor, especially given the, the omnipresence of legacy players jumping into the Vintage event. I'm at 40, 40 participants, 8.7%. I'm a little bit surprised, but now that I think about it, you know, Mentor was right under the, just kind of floating right under the surface for NYSE and a handful of other recent events. Well, I think part of the part of the reason for that is that the, the Pyromancer Delbert X, after a year of real, you know, really two years of, of heavy play, are a fairly consolidated, uniform, homogenous archetype. Whereas Mentor represents a real yep. multiplicity of our of strategies. And I really want to talk about this for a little bit because you know, Kevin, I, I have been working as diligently and put more as much energy into mentor and vintage as anyone in the in the format over the you mm-hmm. know, starting from the VSL season two, where I as soon as Mentor was printed, I played Mentor <laughs> in VSL and I've been playing mm-hmm. it trying to refine it and make it work. But but I think the key point here is that although it seems there's forty decks, the strategic diversity among these mentor vet decks is I suspect enormous. So you have, you know, on the one extreme, people like I think Brian Palace's deck. You have really such a multiplicity of mentor strategies. You have mentor strategies. I'll just go through a few of them. So on the one hand, you've got the kind like I've been playing, which are like Delver decks with mentor, light man, you know, low moxin count, high density of spells. Then you've got the mentor decks like. Um, Brian Kelly played a couple months back, maybe six, eight months, you know, six months ago, and like was represented by Mike Herbig here, which has a lot of the gush in Dig Through Time Engine, but it has the full Moxon complement, um, and it has like one or two Sensei's top, tops, which is similar to your version of Mentor, except you have Remora. And then you have more combo-ish Mentor decks. So you've got the Mentor decks that are both in the, the mini Jace decks, Jace Vin Prodigy. Um, and then you have the mentor decks that are in sort of the more combo-ish decks with Time Twister like Brian Palace has. So you've got a huge spectrum of mentor decks that it's a much more heterogeneous archetype than than uh, you know you see. So yeah, for example, Brian Palace at 23rd place, he has the big mana mentor deck with, uh, I guess you'd call it Steel City Vault variant with Tezzer Mentor. He's got mm-hmm. four mentors, but he's got, you know, Time Twister, he's got uh, Tezzeret, Voltaic Keys, you know, Repeals, Podcast. yeah, all that. So, so you have so many different mentor decks. It's not surprising that you would have in the aggregate more mentor decks because there's so many strategic options. And I was hoping that this mm-hmm. tournament would help us figure out what is the best mentor deck. In the end, I'm with Ryan Eberhardt. If I had played a one of those type decks, I would have played, as you know, Kevin, because you saw me brewing it, working on it, something very similar to what he played in the top eight. That's almost it's he's like five cards off from what I would have played. But um, 
yeah, so, so I think that explains the, the greater number of Mentor decks. Mentor decks also appear as like a two-of in some, you know, Landstill-type decks. So, anyway. And, and Mentor decks, like nearly every deck in the format, but Mentor is still suffering from a bit of an identity crisis in terms of how it, of how it positions itself vis-a-vis Delver and yeah. Workshops. <laughs> the, the, the deck has a ton of options in terms of how it positions itself just on the spectrum of those right. two opponents, uh, not to mention tr- challenges with Dredge, of course. But interestingly enough, one of the things I want to point out here is a deck's relative penetration into the high point totals of the event. I've done some analysis on what portion of a deck's pilots made it into the top three point tiers of the final standings. 25 points is top eight. It was a clean cut. 24 points is approximately top 16, but not exactly because 24 points goes beyond top 16. And then 22 points, which a lot of people might refer to as top 32, but actually goes down to 60th place. And looking at the 24-point threshold, meaning approximately top 16, although not exactly, the best converting deck in terms of percentage of its pilots making it to that threshold yep. is Hangerback Aggro, yep. with, four, with 4 out of 11 pilots, or 36%, making it into the, the X and 2 right. bracket, basically, or better. The next best deck was Grixis, with 2 out of 18, 11%. In third place, Bomberman, with with 1 out of 11, or 9%. And then fourth place was Mentor, with 3 out of 40. Now, think think about that, though. The first place converting is this Hangerback Aggro deck. We've discussed how it was played by relatively few players, but they were very well positioned. 36% of its players, but that's only 11 people. But in fourth place, Mentor put 3 out of... 40, <laughs> which is only 8%, but it's the fourth best penetration of an archetype, and there are 40 players of that archetype. I don't know. There's some different messages you can take from from these different quantities of players, but all things considered, workshops, workshops, the best performing workshop archetype in terms of this penetration was this Hangerback Aggro deck by far, and putting two people in the top eight didn't hurt, but Brian DeMars in ninth place was right on the edge there too. But it's it's just very interesting to me how once you normalize for decks that had more than two pilots right. in the whole event, you get you get Hangerback Aggro and Bomberman and Grixis and Mentor being your top converters. It really puts things in an interesting perspective because when you talk about our predictions, we talked about workshops, two to three players in the top eight we predicted. Then we, sh- we were certain there was going to be a Dredge. Dredge converted 4% of its players, only two out of wow. 50 players into the 24-point wow. bracket. That's not very good. I mean, that's barely enough to make a blip when you've got 50 players. And similarly, Oath. Oath put one of 45 mm. in this bracket. The winner, <laughs> Brian Kelly, but only one out of 45. So if you want, what this suggests is if you really want to make top eight, or at least top 16, of a large vintage event, Workshops is actually still your yeah. best bet, which yeah. we predicted before. But a- but after that, it's it's Grixis and Bomberman and Mentor. And after Mentor was Martello at 7%, or 4 out of 55. 55 players, 4 of them made the X and 2 bracket for Martello. Compare that to 4 out of 11 for Hangerback Walker. Now, if you combine all these archetypes together, then the numbers get a little muddier, and I don't have that math in front of me. But the simple truth is is that some of these archetypes that don't get a lot of attention from us and from the environment at large, like Bomberman, for example, and Grixis these days, are still converting well in, in top eight performances. Grixis is second place here. Bomberman had one in the top eight at the NYSE. 
And we've got, obviously, we don't have Brian Kelly's oath deck classified as Bomberman in these numbers, but it very well is defensively in that category as well. Bomberman suffers from the simple problem that it's not a magic online. So, you know, the data is, yeah. of course, asymmetric there. Um, Grixis, I think, has suffered from the problem that that it's just until very recently been a very poor performer. It's not something people played because it's something mm-hmm. that has done so badly against Delver decks. But Delver decks have clearly been pushed to the margins here. I mean, we have one Delver as eighth place, but according to your data, the data you compiled, there are 21 Delver decks in the environment, and they didn't do all that great. Only 2%. Only one. Only one person in the, in the X and 2 bracket. Then, the one yeah, that was and there top were two eight. in the top, what, 32? Is that what you have? Or what is it? Is it the X and 3 bracket. Yeah. So... Um, yeah. you know, I, I think that this suggests a gigantic opening for Grixis, and I'm not surprised that Grixis has stepped up to take it, because, you know, this is what I said in the last podcast, which is Grixis in different language, which is that Grixis is, in many ways, the most natural, one of the most naturally powerful strategies in the format, because Tinker, Time, Tinker, Time Bolt, Yawgmoth's Will are just, you know, those are the three cards that have always come up. If you're going to ban a card in Vintage, it would be one of those three cards. They're just powerful, restricted cards. Mm-hmm. And it's the deck that centrally features them the most. And this particular environment seemed really you know vulnerable to that to that strategy so i'm not at all surprised that grixis has come back and you know we when we our last podcast again the one of the most recent data that i had pointed out was one of the four and or three and o's was a grixis thieves deck with one thief but um it's clear that that strategy with notion thief and all those other cards in deck faden is really well positioned it is and it'll be interesting to see how this uh, adapts going forward because uh, I played against Bobby Green, the the second place finisher, with his Grixis Thieves deck in the Swiss, and uh, I didn't like my draws that match. But the simple truth is, is that he did against me what Grixis does. He did yeah. what you said. Its strengths, the power, yes. the haymakers, combined with a little bit of tactical. Uh, excellent positioning vis-a-vis yes. Notion Thief, and you put all those things together, it can yeah. just overpower almost any archetype and with the right draws. My tournament was to Josh Rabbits, who got 10th place with the exact same strategy. In the first game, I beat him mm-hmm. on turn one by gush bonding out. The second game, <laughs> he had turn one, thirst for knowledge, turn two, a ton of mana, and combo out. The third game, mm-hmm. I got him to one life with Pyromancer, and he won by assembling Keyball. And I had Flusterstorm in my hand. He called in we'll take key, mm-hmm. which is exactly what that deck wants to do against Flusterstorms and Red Blasts and all that stuff. Now, yep. I think I could have won that last yep. game had I done one subtle play differently that I'll talk about later, but it just underscores the central point we're talking about here. So I think that does it for our metagame observations, but we definitely want to get into more specifics vis-a-vis the top eight. Let's do it. We have a lot to say, I think, specifically about our winner, Brian Kelly's Bomberman Oath list. We've touched on it a bit before. Clearly, clearly, one of the things that Brian has done with this list is hybridize multiple victory conditions and take some of the best of what is the Oath of Druid strategy and filter out some right. of its weaknesses. Right. Let's let's talk about some of the advantages that his list has over the kind of Oath deck we were discussing earlier, the baseline Fenton-style Crystal Brand Oath. Yeah. 
so I listened to the and during the coverage. Some I think Bob and, and Randy were talking about you know the the creature you know what happens after you oath of the creature and you know I think they were mistaken at one point. I think Pop said you know it doesn't really matter what happens once you oath up oath of the creature, but there was a probably the most interesting vintage Super League match in season two, if not the most interesting ever, was Rich Shea versus um, David Williams, where Rich oathed up Bristlebrand and David just sat there and won on bug control with. Caracas. So, you know, we haven't really talked about mm-hmm. it a lot in the past, but the background assumption with, with Oath is that uniformity of creatures, you select the best creature and you, you, you include, you make it uniform because that's the creature you want to Oath up every time. And, you know, yes, there have been decks in the past going all the way back to the early 2000s, Oath decks like yours, Kevin, Sapphire Oath, that, um, you know, run multiple, run different creatures. But that has not been the trend since Crystal Brand's been printed. The strategy for combating mm-hmm. cards like that have usually been, sh- cards that combat Oath has been show and tell. What Brian Kelly's deck does has a couple key advantages, in my opinion. The first is that it diversifies its creature base, which means that every time you Oath, you get some different kind of advantage. I mean, I think I saw him Oath up four or five different creatures over the course of the tournament. Sphinx of the Steel Wind, Bomber Man, <laughs> certainly Magus of the Moat several times. There may have been other creatures in there mm-hmm. besides Drone um, so, so by yep. having different creatures, he's situ- he's situationally resilient. It's like it's just a it's just a monoculture argument, right? Monoculture is re- you know vulnerable to a single kind of virus or whatever or pestilence. In this case, having diversity of creatures makes him more resilient to these kinds of typical anti oath tactics. It's not as if oathing up RX salvagers is a problem because the oath actually, although the oath only nets you two mana, so to speak, in terms of the salvager itself. The perfect the large function of the oath is that you're binning a spell bomb and the black lotus so that you can actually combo out that way so it, it functions as a tutor in two different ways yeah in multiple ways it's not just getting the creature it's also tutoring up the things in your graveyard that you need to, to combo out but the, the other thing that i think is very important to mention about brian kelly's oath is that by having creatures that that are castable, he doesn't rely on the much like Greg Fenton plays show and tell as a plan B. Brian Kelly's deck is very capable of just winning by playing hard casting the creature. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to get up to mm-hmm. eight mana to cast Bristlebrand. How much does does Dromaka cost? Six. So all his creatures are basically castable. Magus of the Moat is castable. Bomberman's castable, just with regular mana. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the two key advantages. Now, you if you if you stack up the advantages of having the same creature, like three gristle brands, against the disadvantages, which we've talked about, things like Caracas and not being able to cast hard cast it as easily, I think Brian Kelly has hit on a formula, which is not new. He's been playing this deck for a long time, a long time. He played the NYSE, he lost to Brian DeMars in that event. Um, you know, he's carefully managed the cost and benefits of diversifying your creature base in such a way that I think he stumbled on something that's a net advantage. Obviously, a net advantage. But it's hmm. a striking revelation from the perspective of the standard practice with Oath decks is, is uniformity. So so what, is, what do you think of that analysis? Are there other advantages that, that Brian's tapping into? Yeah, uh, well, I would agree with everything you just said. The multiplicity of creatures, the, multi- the diversity of threats... You didn't happen to mention that there's other inherent value of specifically Dragonlord Dramica as well. What with when you cast Dragonlord Dramica, she's uncounterable. <laughs> Five seven flying life link means there's an inherent advantage against various creature decks in the format currently. 
It's it's basically trumps every non-Gristlebrand creature in the format. Even well, it would trump Sphinx of the Steelwind if Sphinx of the Steelwind didn't have protection from green, sadly. But anything other than Sphinx and Gristlebrand, five seven flying lifelink stacks up against. And don't forget, your opponent can't cast can't cast spells during your turn. So oathing up uh, Dragonlardramica when you have access to Bomberman means you can just combo off with impunity, which is another inherent uh, benefit of the diversity. But also one of the key developments that Brian came up with, I think, I don't know if it was for this event or if it was like this at the NYSE, but the multicolor mana base to support Dak Faden and Ancient Grudge. Yeah. Because I think that Dak Faden represents something that Oath lists for a while have been, broadly speaking, missing. And that is uh, the cheap threat that is an Oath of Druid. That's true. Now, granted, most Oath lists, Oath lists have been playing Jace the Mind Sculptor for a while. Which he also has. Brian also has Jace. Granted, granted. So this the Planeswalker concept is not brand new, but Dak Faden is a different, better creature, <laughs> I should say animal, when it comes to this kind of efficient threat. Also, he's got the five-color mana base, which means, again, unlike other Oath lists before it, he can support cards like Magus of the Moat, which is a nice trump that he can also cast, and and Ancient Grudge, which, as we know, I mean, you and I have said long and many times before, if you can support Ancient Grudge, that card is amazing. So he's just, he's synergized a whole bunch of things here. Five-color mana base gives him access to everything. It's like Weissman, the deck. He gets everything, right? I mean, he does. He gets all the good <laughs> cards. He gets Sudden Shock. He gets Ancient Grudge. Yeah, he's actually not playing black. Right. He cut Yawgmoth's Will and Demonic Tutor for this particular event, but he still has, which I just find incredibly funny, he still has seven Rainbow <laughs> Lands. So he can just put four lands out and cast Gristlebrand <laughs> if he needs to. <laughs> it, it, it is odd he has a single mental misstep in the sideboard. I'm not sure what match that's for. but Yeah, I would like to ask him <laughs> but, about but that. The other thing is that in, it's an Listen, what we're saying. So the advantages are, first of all, again, it's not a monoculture. So he's able to have resilience against things that deal with Gristlebrand. He's also able to hard cast mm-hmm. almost all of his creatures, although he does have Gristlebrand, which is, of course, harder to cast. But there's also some really mm-hmm. inherent... This is something you said, not during the podcast, but to me in person, you get more oaths. Usually, when you oath, you only oath once. You get the Gristlebrand. Yeah. The Gristlebrand is bounced or died, then you oath again. But that's not how his deck works. He gets multiple oaths. Mm-mm. He goes up his first creature, and then he oaths up his second, and then depending if he wants to take the risk, you know, he may oath up the third, but as we saw in, in in the videos, he would often wait to play a dig or something to know that it's safe. So the, the creature's not at the bottom of the library. But the value of that is that he gets all these synergies from putting these different pieces together. So, for example, Gristlebrand plus the Dromica or plus the Steelwind means he's got lifelink going with life payments. He's also got lifelinking going with the Sylvan Library. So he's got all these nice little synergies that allow him to do more things with multiple oaks. And- mm-hmm. I, I want to add to that, too, because... Oath of Druids is a very powerful card, we know. You pay two mana, sometimes on the first turn you get access to an amazing creature, right? That's great. The environment is intelligent enough to not always get blown out by turn two or three Gristlebrand these days. There's lots of built-in defenses to it. Every once in a while, though, as you put it, the Oath player just gets the Gristlebrand and then the Oath of Druids sort of ceases being a card. Exactly. It, was a, it, was, it acts like a, sh- a show-and-tell with suspend <laughs> and sits in play, sure, which makes it hard to, to, to just plow Gristlebrand and move on. But that, that, be that as it may, it doesn't trigger for a couple of turns. Right. Brian's list doesn't have that weakness. He can give you a second uh, spirit token with Orchard and Oath again. He can give you a third spirit token and Oath again. And so he's getting more benefit out of Oath of Druids than a three Gristlebrand deck when it happens. And he's got inevitability, the likes of which a Gristlebrand-based deck doesn't have. Because as you put, Caracas, 
for example, can stymie a Gristlebrand-based deck indefinitely. But if o- if Brian gets to 0 three times, by the time oh, he gets yeah. to the third one, he's got Bomberman. It's yes, nearly a sure right. thing. So yeah. whatever you've done that may have kept you alive through Gristlebrand Andromica is is probably not an access that also keeps you alive through Bomberman. Yeah, I mean, Show and Tell is also a reaction to Graft Digger's page, mm-hmm. which is you graft, you oath into the creature, you draw it, you play it. But here, he just he has a natural built-in answer. He just hard oaths up the creature, put his hand, and plays it. Yeah. And and he can also, to your point about multiple oaths or the way oath works, he can play one of his creatures early on and then still make use of oath later on. Mm-hmm. But that would never be the case with a traditional deck. When Once you play Gristlebrand, you would never even play an oath after that. That's a good point. You don't even want to draw them because they're just dead. Yeah. Whereas you're yeah, right. But- Brian could conceivably cast Dramica, for example, and still be looking for an oath to finish yeah. his combo. <laughs> so he's fighting you on two axes still. Yeah. Yeah, that's really hard to to to, to deal with. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's huge advantages here, and and I think it's an absolute shame that this can't be represented on Magic Online because Salvagers is a critical part of this combo, mm-hmm. and and I think it's a great deck. It's a great deck. Um, now, of course, there are people who, I mean, there's definitely Brian Kelly isms here, and, and by that I mean <laughs> in the nicest possible way. I really do love Brian Kelly, but the um, the three force of wills is unorthodox to say the least. Yeah. And I know Kai Buda was tweeting, you know, about whether that could possibly be right. Do you have a take on that, Kevin? My take is that I think you're giving up too much ground to workshops. I've listened to Brian yeah. and his rationale there, and I just I, I would cut a probe from this list and play four forces in the main. Yeah, not just workshops, but I think that this deck is probably soft to decks like Belcher and things like that. I can't imagine not. Play. I mean, there's combo is a presence in this environment. And I didn't emphasize this enough, but you know, the diversity of the format is enormous right now. We see everything strategically represented, including combo. Mm-hmm. Combo wasn't top eight, but there were a number of combo decks, and according to your data, it had one of the highest median finishes. I just think the combo decks have to be sensitive to shops, and shops obviously put a huge damper on combo as a strategy. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think Four Force of Will is both important against shops, but also against decks like Belcher and... TPS. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also, one of the things... (laughs) It's funny. There's an inverse relationship here, because one of the things we've observed is that he doesn't have show-and-tell. What that would suggest, just on at face value, is that he's got fewer dead cards in his deck because yes, show and tells exactly. are are weak in multiple. Every card in his deck is more valuable. <laughs> but on the flip side, though, he has a whole bunch of strange choices that are not, <laughs> they're not strange; they're completely defensible, but they're very unusual for an oath deck. Yeah, on- he's got one Sylvan Library. He's got one Explosives, which is you know a nice Swiss Army knife. He's got one repeal, which I'm not a big fan of. He's got two pyrite spell bombs, which obviously are part of Bomberman, but also general utility. So he's got kind of a mass of cards that you might draw the wrong one in the wrong scenario in a, in a, a lot of the time. I can see drawing a pyrite spell bomb when you really need to draw cards and just, you know, there's chalice for one in play or, or something similar. He's got a diversity of answers. He can answer almost any threat when you combine repeal, ancient grudge, engineer explosives, spell bomb, and repeal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a diversity of answers, not to mention Dak and Jace. Definitely. But at the same time, I just can't shake the feeling that the average hand or the average draw from this deck has even higher variance than the Fenton Oath-style decks. Well, undoubtedly, but I think what, what Brian has done, and again, I don't want to say that anything I'm calling unorthodox is just unorthodox. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah. Not just a, I'm sure Brian could justify every single card choice here. Now, Brian is a avid, avid vintage enthusiast. Mm-hmm. 
and knows his decks inside and out, and I'm sure has put a lot of thought into it. Now, to Kai Bu's point, that doesn't make every choice right, <laughs> but it's, it certainly means it's defensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you know he's just got so many different cards here that have internal synergies that that's basically what he's going for. You know, he can just win with generating card advantage, Jace, mm-hmm. Dak. He can win by the oath. He can win through. He just got has so many different so many different paths to victory, and not just in the linear sense, but he has so many different synergies that advance advance the game for him. It's it's amazing. I would caution players who are excited and energized by this deck, but picking it up for the first time, not to make too many changes up front, yeah, but to exactly. play this list and see how the various cards function in different matchups. Because I said, for example, cut a probe, add a force of will. Well, I mean, that change oh. sounds right to me, but it might not be, it might throw some other ratios in the deck off kilter. Right. It could also be, you know, the first thing I would do, although I completely agree with your your advice here, I would probably make the force of will on the sideboard over that misstep. I, I just can't imagine what he's got misstep in here that you know wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't benefit from a force of will in that particular match. Well, maybe, I would say it's probably targeted at cage. Yeah, but he's got so much for cage. He does have but a lot I, of anti cage. Yeah, I mean, he's got repeal. He's got more rest, more anti cage than he could possibly ever use actually. And, and, and it's not that he. <laughs> And he doesn't even have to anchor cage per se. Yeah. I mean, you know, unless they're against shops, you probably he probably does. But that's right. That's a good point. <laughs> against decks with cage, though, he might. I don't know. He might be boarding out Fluster Storm for Misstep. He just he, that seems like the most obvious starting point for why Misstep is in there. But this is a this is a great list. I I am definitely energized and excited to see not only Brian but a Brian Kelly deck win this event. And I hope this draws some attention to to creative minds out there to think outside the box yeah. and try some things you might not normally try. And and I'm saying this not only because Brian likes our podcast. In fact, our last podcast, he, he always, I think, comments that he enjoys our podcast. But, um, you know, Brian is a, a, an ex- exceptional vintage champion to have, mm. and I'm very happy for him. Yeah, there's an interview, a podcast interview with Brian that was just posted today on Eternal Central. So for those of you who'd like to hear more, hear more about his perspective, a little bit on his tournament report, and a lot on his deck development, then check that out. It's called the Eternal Insight Podcast, Episode 1. It's an interview with Brian. And I listened to it. It was quite good. And I couldn't agree more with you, Steve. I mean, he is he's a good ambassador for the format. He tells a nice he, he weaves a nice yarn about his history with the format and his development with this deck and other decks before it. And his process is very uh, it's it's very evolutionary, I was going to say, but it's also very well considered. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that. But let's talk about the rest of this top eight now. Let's do it. The second thing is Robert Green's Grixis Control, and the first thing I want to point out is I, I think he's pulled the Mark Lenegra here. I think he's found the configuration of cards that it, that's uh, the right you know the right solution to the field. And in particular, it's fascinating to note that he has two Dismembers main deck. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Let, let's expand on that a little bit, though. One Lightning Bolt, two Dismembers, and one Toxic Deluge are his yes. quote-unquote removal package. I, I, I agree with you. I zeroed right in on that and thought that is fascinating. So what does Dismember buy you over more traditional things like just Lightning Bolts? Right. Well, it certainly helps you kill Mentor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, to me, is the obvious. But, it, but here's the thing. Sudden Shock is the go-to answer for killing Mentors. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it doesn't kill Lodestone Golem. Mm-hmm. And Bolt does, is not reliable anti-Mentor uh, card either. Dismember does both of that. It kills the two critical creatures that you need to be able to kill. And it dodges Chalice at one. 
I was going to say, I was actually going to say it dodges mental misstep, but your point is also true. Also true, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it dodges both chalice at one and mental misstep. And so I think that's partly what it's doing. It also just happens to be really decent in situationally by, for example, you can, you know, the turn your opponent oaths up Gristlebrand, you can play one of these and buy a turn, basically, the time wall. Mm-hmm. Also, it's worth noting that he has... His creature base is Sphinx of the Steel Wind, two Snapcasters, two Notion Thieves, one Consecrated Sphinx. Two of those creatures can block and kill a dismembered Gristlebrand. <laughs> right. I, I wanted to, to point out the Sphinx of the Steel Wind as well, mm-hmm. because you know the, the, the problem I was struggling with in trying to figure out what to play in terms of if I was going to play a Time Vault deck, if you play Key Vault, you basically have to play Tinker. Yeah. Because Tinker is part of, you know, just another tutor for one of those parts. Yep. But then if you play Tinker, you have to play a Tinker bot, mm-hmm. or, you know, you're strongly incented to do so. But Blackstone Colossus is really a liability environment with so much stack. Yep. So this this use of Sphinx is, I think, really quite clever, and I think much better than um, Inkwell Leviathan in this environment. I think that's the right solution. And uh, Sphinx, obviously, it being red, anti-red and green means it can't be destroyed easily. Uh, and it's the lifelink is obviously huge against the Mentor decks. So I think he just made every decision correctly and had a brilliant metagame choice here, but 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 also solved a lot of these problems, which is what do you play in that spot? How do you deal with Mentor and have a card that deals with that uh, Lodestone Golem and so on and so forth? Yeah, I agree completely. And in addition to that, the Consecrated Sphinx is a nice piece of technology borrowed from Blue Moon, which gives you just yet another haymaker, yet another thing to spend your mana drain mana on that unanswered will completely blow a game open for you. So oh, it's a, it's, I was just going to make the point that um, the three mana drains, he's going to be hitting digs and stuff like that all the time. <laughs> Now, what's he going to use that mana on? There's almost nothing better. Well, he only has one dig, unfortunately. It's one of the, I think... No, no, I, mean, no I mean you're going to be mana draining your opponent's Oh, I'm opponent. sorry. You're completely right. Yes. Mana drain has, because of Delve, gotten a little bit better in the blue matchups of late because even a simple innocuous blue-blue dig through time means your mana drain is producing eight and you can cast possibly multiple spells off of it on the next turn, which is awesome. Yep. I do think it'd be neat to, to cram another dig through time into this list because one of the challenges... In a deck like this, it doesn't have Gush, it doesn't have Thought Cast, it has one dig through time. He doesn't even have Treasure Cruise. To, oh, he does oh, he have does. one Treasure Cruise. So he's got, he, he's light on draw spells. He doesn't have uh, Sensei's Divining but, Top either. Well, he has a big, big, big card advantage spell called Yawgmoth. <laughs> That's which, true. Which is disynergistic with those Delve spells. So I can I can understand the two Delve spells given the emphasis on Yogwell. That's a fair point. He does have three Dak Faden and two Jace the Mind Sculptors. In combination with Notion Thief and Consecrated Sphinx, provide kind of a permanent base draw engine. But as we've discussed, it, it, Grixis has traditionally had a disadvantage against the Gush-based aggro control decks just because of card quantity and virtual yeah. card advantage that decks like Delver and Mentor bring to the table. I think this deck has done the best that you can to try and shore up those weaknesses while keeping the Haymakers... Yeah, and he's got lots of answers. He's got lots of answers for Revoker as well between the cards that we talked about. Oh, that's a good point as well. Yeah. Well, this is a fun list. I think anyone who's ex- interested in Grixis should really look at this as a starting point. Well, two, two more observations though before I move mm-hmm. on briefly. One is he has Mikakoro instead of Library. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot incredible. to mention what they 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 would not go away from on coverage was that this list is 61 cards. It features Mikakoro and no Library. 
So uh, just like Brian Kelly's three force of wills, I'm of the I'm of the camp that says you should probably streamline this list and get it down to 60 cards. And Miko Koro has synergy with Consecrated Sphinx and Notion Thief. Interestingly enough, as you could see this on the coverage, as uh, Bobby activated Nico Koros a couple times in feature matches, it also has synergy with your opponent having seven cards during their end step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you get you get the benefit and they get a loot, but they don't get to actually plus one card. There's some risk the there, second... of course. They could play something, of course, but still. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, make a core plus DAC or whatever is just, you know, fine. It, you, know, you get the. Yeah, I think fine yeah. is the best way to describe it. Yeah. The other thing is, I think he's really sliced the, you know, sliced things very closely in terms of his dredge matchup. His sideboard has three cage, one Yixlib Jailer, and one Nihil Spellbomb. Uh, you know, so he obviously has the capacity to combo out over the top with Key Vault and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, he, he's got a lot of cards in his sideboard, and it's clear he probably struggled trying to figure out how to cram everything in there. He also has a, I should also point out he has a Rakdos Charm mm-hmm. in there as well. Rakdos Charm is nice with the uh, uh, Snapcatcher as well. Well, it's worth pointing out that Bobby defeated Sullivan Brophy in the top eight on Dredge. He lost game one and won games two and three, so sideboard is good enough in that context. Right, and the diversity, obviously, is a challenge for for Sullivan Brophy, for any Dredge player, because you're dealing with so many different answers. That's true. When your opponent has Cage and a creature in Yixit Jailer and a spell in Rakdos Charm, then, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if Bobby didn't bring in Slaughter Games against Dredge also as a way to, if you can get to that point in the mid-game, you need another another hate card or two to get to that point usually. But if you can, it can be a nice a nice uh, scalpel for whatever threat you think is worst of theirs to get out of the scenario. That card is a nightmare for Mentor decks. Holy smokes. You know, it's funny. He cast it against me, but it was kind of a non-issue because he already had Sphinx of the Steelwind in play. And he cast yeah. it to get rid of my plows, which was my best answer to the Sphinx. But I didn't have one coming anyway, so it wouldn't have happened either way. <laughs> Fascinating. Great, great design. I mean, I, I can't give Robert Green enough credit for a brilliant design. I know it was a team effort because I spoke to him and some of his friends later on in the Swiss, and they mentioned that they had worked on the deck with other team members of theirs. Where are they from? I do not know. I don't recognize his name. No, I did not either. But they definitely have at least a small group of people developing vintage where they're from. So we um, covered Sullivan Brophy's deck, you know, approach a, a lot a couple of podcasts ago, and we talked about the NYSE. But here he is at third place, and where none of us are shocked at all. In fact, the only thing that we're, we're probably more surprised that he didn't win the event. <laughs> Then he's in the top eight. Yeah, that's true. I asked on the manager if anyone had text coverage of his matchup with Bobby Green because I definitely want to know how those games went down. Uh, it, it, I could see either player winning that matchup, and Sullivan's obviously yep. very skilled at fighting through hate. So I really wish if anyone out there who's listening to this has a text breakdown of how that match went, I'd really love to read it. All right, let's talk about the first of a couple of workshop decks then. Paul Mastriano's Hangerback Aggro. And the salient features of this we've already alluded to several times, but we're talking about four Hangerback Walkers, three Arcbound Ravagers in the main, in addition to Chalice, Thorn Sphere, Tanglewire, Revoker, three Metamorphs, and four Lodestone Golem. So it's not too far removed from the traditional disruption suite of Forge Master Martello, but instead right. of Kaldotha Forge Master, we've got Hangerback Walkers, Revokers, and three Metamorphs is a variable number. Some some Martello lists play zero or one, some play three or four. It's it's kind of a flex card. I know that 
Paul and Brian specifically really respected how good it was in the mirror and that's why they have three in the main and one more in the board which is pretty common for the high placing Um, workshop decks in this event yeah the one thing they shaved off was the fourth chalice Mm -hmm. which you know i can sort of understand because if you want to get all your mana out for your hanger backs um but i know paul was very concerned about playing against sullivan brophy uh felt like that may have been his weakest match i think paul had one loss in the swiss i don't know who it was too but it may have been sullivan um you happen to know no i don't know who paul's one loss was to okay you could look that up it's not a big deal but i do know that both he and brian were very concerned with addressing their dredge matchup post sideboard which is why their their sideboard includes three ghost quarter four cage and three crypt yep there's not really much else that we can say i don't think about paul's deck at this point since we've discussed the positioning of of hangerback aggro amongst the other workshop decks and the rest of the metagame already quite true okay let's move on to the fifth place deck which is you are w mentor by michael herbig well you already touched on how this particular mentor list is positioned amongst the others this is most notably yeah. identified by the four preordains yeah i mean he's got the gush bond package but but like all the decks that pack in all the artifact acceleration it's compressed a little bit so you know it's two digs instead of three and three gushes instead of four and um there isn't much else to sort of that stands out here and of course once you have all the artifact acceleration you have to play with a, a top <laughs> which he has i mean it's just it's insane right yep. so top is almost always multiple i mean as you as you played with it mm-hmm. Um, so this is just a very traditional, I think, I don't think there's anything that really stands out here is unusual in terms of this kind of mentor design. I would point to Library of, of Alexandria and Strip Mine being in the list as not sp- specifically unusual, but it points to right. he has a particular goal in mind when he's playing against other control decks, for example. He wants yeah. to have library and he wants to have library superiority. Right. This isn't this isn't winning through virtual card advantage. This is winning through power. Yep. So that brings us to Rich Shea's sixth place deck. And Rich Shea played exactly the deck that he had been playing in the MTGO uh, you know, um, online events, I believe, because he has the four Ravagers. But unlike the difference, one of the key differences is, is, is I mentioned before, he has no sphere of resistance. And he has three trikes and three sword of fire and ice. And I think from talking to Paul and, and Rich, and Paul and Brian and Rich, I think the difference is that since since Paul and Brian played uh, Sphere Resistance, they can't really afford the six mana for Trike, mm-hmm. whereas Rich cutting spheres makes Trike a more playable card. And do my eyes deceive me, or does Rich have zero metamorphs in his 75? Good point. I don't think there are any metamorphs there. That's a huge advantage for, for Paul. Yeah, it definitely is. I think this is one of this observes one of the things that that Paul and Brian observed in their development of uh, their deck vis-a-vis the mirror is that uh, Rich has so many things that are really juicy targets for Metamorph. <laughs> like yeah. he can pay six mana for a Triskelion, and they can pay three mana and get a Triskelion. At the very least, they'll force him to activate his Triskelion in response, in which case they can pick the next best thing. Also, sort of fire and ice. If they want, if they think it's right for them to have sword when he has it, then they can take it. If not, they can just take another creature. It's just the the versatility of Metamorph is so huge in the mirror. And when your opponent has five or six mana creatures in their deck, you also get a tempo advantage by being the one with Metamorph. And it's also worth pointing. I completely agree with everything. One of the best cards in the workshop mirror. But also Brian and Paul have an inverse of, of uh, Rich's ratios of Hangerbacks and Arcbound Ravagers. Mm-hmm. They're all in on Hangerback and have three Arcbounds. It's the opposite of Rich. So Which gives them have, the advantage. Yeah, they have Hangerback superiority. <laughs> yeah. Also, 
Rich has lands in his sideboard just like Paul and Brian did, but they're Caracas. He's got three Caracas in his sideboard, which is a fine land, and you would probably consider bringing it in in the mirror still just to have more mana sources, but it's not nearly as good as the Ghost Quarters that Brian has in his list. That Paul has, both, yeah. yeah. So interesting selections here. And also both groups uh, really doubled down against Dredge because Rich has four Tormod's Crypts and three Relic of Progenitus right. in his sideboard. So lots of Dredge hate there. Moving on to seventh place is the Planeswalker Control deck. This is actually, I think, pretty close to what Sully Mossy was playing in his deck deck, right? It is, with the exception of creatures. You'll note that John Grudzina's list here has exactly one creature in it. <laughs> and that one creature is a lowly Snapcaster Mage. <laughs> which can't even attack if he gets his one mode into play <laughs> he is definitely he is definitely all in on winning with planeswalkers he has four dak fadens two jace the mind sculptor and a narset transcendent which is fascinating and so he's definitely doubling doubling down tripling down even on the full control as you put it this is as as slow a control deck as you can really get in vintage shy of land still and land still is going to kill you faster than this deck will <laughs> yeah so this this is this is the throwback deck for sure yeah. with moat showing up and, and a wrath of god effect in here is pretty awesome mm-hmm. but i also like how he, he builds in the uh the, the preordained dig combo as well yeah so he's got plenty of card advantage between planeswalkers and digs as you've observed this, this deck has got to be a lot of fun to play but i certainly wouldn't play it i'd be an unintentional draw land for sure <laughs> well yeah you do you do have to understand your matchups so you can execute quickly. This is a grindy. This deck is only capable of one mode, which is grind. And also, this is a metagame deck. This is this is the epitome of what I was observing in my prediction when I said that skilled deck constructors. And I was thinking about land still, but this applies to yeah. this as well. Skilled control deck constructors can abuse known metagames. Yeah. And I think that's what this represents. Especially blue pilots. I mean, that that's the that's the end goal the of of the Weissman strategy, right? Is that you build, you design your blue control deck for the metagame. Mm-hmm. And both John and Bobby Green did a great job of that, just like Mark Lenigra did a couple of years ago. I do want to say, because I forgot to mention it, I'm not giving you credit in your prediction for um, for Bomberman being with uh, Brian Kelly. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I wouldn't take that credit. So, <laughs> I wouldn't take that credit, no. Because that's <laughs> just as we were picturing Fenton-style Oath when we said no Oath, I was also picturing more traditional Bomberman when I said Bomberman. So, no, I agree with you there. But so this, in, but in this kind of deck is in the vein of what I was talking about when I said skilled control deck can, uh, developers can abuse a known metagame. This is the sort of thing I was picturing. Right. And then in the eighth place deck is Ryan Eberhardt, again, repeating. Mm-hmm. With congratulations to him. That's awesome. Um, but this is he came to a lot of the same conclusions I came to about this archetype that uh, that really you probably should be playing Pyromancer over Mentor. And then, but you should also have Plows mm-hmm. for, for Mentor and... Um, he, he did the exact same thing. Of course, he loves Gitaxian Probe. Remember when we did our recap, Kevin? He was the only player of the four Delver decks in the Vintage Champs last year that had all the probes. Yeah. I think they may have had probes at all. At all. I don't remember what. It was all or some. But uh, but uh, otherwise, I think he's uh, he's pretty much right on everything. I, I, I think a lot of... It's interesting how a lot of people really like Pulverize more than I do. I'm not as big on Pulverize, but... um. I think everything else here is pretty pretty sweet. Yeah, I agree. This list is a nice evolution of this archetype. I think the plows are right on. I wouldn't be surprised to see a third plow make it into the main, depending on yeah. the evolution of the metagame. Honestly, I would consider four. Yeah. But yeah. 
Well, and that does it for the top eight. As we've discussed before, a great tactically diverse top eight that's representative basically of the whole metagame. Very strategically diverse. Yes, tactically and strategically. And congratulations to all the top eight competitors, some of you for the second or third time. Or fourth in Paul's case. Right. I think he's the only one who's top eight this four times. You and I both having top eight three times. So, Steve, let's talk then about our own experiences in the event. So, Kevin, let's turn to our decks and what we played for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Begin with your deck. Your deck is incredibly interesting. Tell me a little bit about the deck you chose and why. This is a Jeskai Mentor deck that I've been piloting this exact 75 or or one within a couple cards of it for several tournaments now. And it's part of the choice I made to play this deck because I'm so comfortable with it. It has weak matchup against Chops. But it is it is pre-boarded to be very good against other blue decks in the format, and I, I radically overhaul my deck post-sideboard against shops. Well, there's so many ways to build mentor decks, and Jeskai, for those of you who are like me and don't aren't on with the aren't uh, hip with the new terms, is blue <laughs> blue red white. Uh, Team America. Uh-huh. But so so there's so many different ways to build Mentor. And you've been playing Mentor since like me, since it was actually before it was released. <laughs> so right. what made you what made you decide to go with the particular configuration you have? And could you just sort of describe its basic elements for our listeners? So you, you describe strategically where you're trying to situate it, but you know, what is what is distinctive about your mentor deck? The most notable single card is Mystic Remora. I hit upon Mystic Remora as a Delver was reaching its zenith about a year ago in popularity and play, both locally and overall, especially what with the printing of Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time. And I was very impressed by the way Mystic Remora trumps other low-mana, high-cantrip count-style decks, which is where Delver was making all its hay. So the reason I play Remora is to get tons of extra card advantage against those other people playing Gush, and then the rest of my deck is basically constructed around that. Initially, I played an almost maximum number of free counters, at least within reason. Four forces, I've got three mental missteps now, I've played four before, and I have Mind Break Trap, one Mind Break Trap for this tournament. I've also played one Misdirection, but I had to back down on that to help my main deck a little bit against Workshops. So I'm paying a heavy complement of free counters, Swords to Plowshares for removal, one main deck Hercules, it's one of my favorite um, anti-workshop technologies. And I'm playing a very similar draw engine to the Delver Shell, which is three Gush, three Digs, plus restricted cards, Treasure Cruise, Ancestral Brainstorm, Ponder. So full complement of Preordain? Uh, no, I play zero Preordain. Mystic Remora is serving the, the spot that Preordain does in my deck. So right. that means I am a little bit weaker against shops in that my proactive play is not as selective. I can't dig for lands as well. So, so you have a, a trade-off between sort of the consistency and selectivity versus the raw power of Remora. That is precisely it. And one other key feature is Cavern of Souls. I play two Cavern of Souls to go with my four mentors and one Snapcaster Mage. And Cavern of Souls is is critical at fighting other blue decks also because Mystic Remora sometimes has the effect of slowing the game down. You right. play you play Remora on turn one, and you'll be surprised what your opponents won't do for a couple of turns. <laughs> and that gives me time to play a couple of lands. 
And if on turn two, three, four, I decide to let the Remora go, I can untap, play a Cavern of Souls on human, resolve a Monastery Mentor, and then everything that happens after that is happening with involving my removal encounters with my uh, Monastery Mentor in play, meaning I'm getting maximum advantage from the monk tokens. So, so, so it's not as if Cavern is just there to be like, hey, I'm going to slam Mentor on turn two or three with with Cavern. Actually, has a much more strategic role in your deck, which is that you know you can plan that the flow of the game is going to go a certain kind of way with Remora in play, mm-hmm. and Cavern really allows you to capitalize on that. So it's it's like a you have a, a basic kind of trajectory of game plan that involves Cavern at the at sort of the the second to last step. That's precisely it. All of my Interactive spells, counter spells, and removal, all of them, with the exception of Hercules Recall, which is out of scope for this comment, but they're all zero or one mana. Sorts to Plowshares, Fluster Storm, Force of Will, all those things I can very cheaply interact with my opponent if they choose to interact with Remora in play. Because very frequently, when you play Remora, you'll tap the one mana you played on turn one during your upkeep to pay for it, and then play a second one. So you've got one mana to interact. Then it ticks up to two. You tap the two you've got, play a third one. Again, you have one mana to interact. It's that game plan that I structured the deck around for all the blue matchups. I think what that suggests is if someone's just like picking up your deck and playing it, there's a really good chance they won't play it like you played it. Because it's, <laughs> it's in other words, like you don't just play the cards to curve out. You actually have a game plan and sort of a sequence. And watching you play it, and I got to watch you a lot on Saturday especially, which was the prelim event. But it's not like you just slam down Mentor at the earliest opportunity. You actually play a very controlling role. Mm-hmm. Yes, I categorize this definitely as a control deck. It has a couple of aggressive draws, just like any vintage deck with Black Lotus does, but generally speaking, this is hard control for most of its role. And then if Mentor hits and I can manage to make a couple of tokens and turn the corner, I can finish the game very quickly, a la the old Psychotog decks. Yep. So um, I remember, I mean, you've been playing this deck for some time. How has it evolved over that time? I remember, I think Bob Marr may have played your deck in one of the VSL seasons, mm-hmm. but how? what kind of tweaks have you made over time? What have you learned about Mentor over that time? The very first version was blue-white only, and as you alluded to earlier, I actually played it before it was technically legal. We had a local invitation-only event where we agreed that we would let uh, Monastery Mentor and Friends be legal. It was about a week beforehand. I think it was the weekend before Fate Reforged was was legal. So I I played it blue-white then with four treasure crews. Now that deck with Monastery Mentor and four treasure crews was never technically legal in vintage because the treasure crews was restricted a week later. So I comically got to play with a a very overpowered deck, in my opinion. But that was initially blue-white, and I think I quickly found after just one or two more tournaments that red really was significantly important to beating workshops, and I came around to playing Dak Fane in the main. So after the first couple of forays, for the next maybe six or seven or eight tournaments, it has been featuring red in the main deck with Dak Faden. I've I've experimented with a number of certain counter spells like three versus four missteps, three versus four fluster storms. I've even played four remoras in one event where I was anticipating a lot of mirror matches. But as a nod to workshops, I had to come back to earth and back down a couple of the numbers. So three three fluster storms, three missteps, four forces, one mind break trap is all the counters I've played this time. 
So is it safe to say, besides the color, adding a color, which is obviously a big difference, most of your changes have just been tweaks at the margin? Or is there any sort of fundamental realization you've made in adjusting your deck over that time? Uh, beyond what I've mentioned, the most fundamental realization, I think, would involve the lands, specifically Cavern of Souls, because an early version of the deck had Library of Alexandria in it. And while Library is insane, and it did win me some games against control matchups, no doubt, I found that the tactical, the plan that I outlined before for Cavern versus other control opponents was more reliable and more effective than having Library in there, which simply was not very good at casting things like Flusterstorm, Mystic Remora, Swords to Plowshares, etc. I found that it gummed up more hands than it helped. Are you strongly of the opinion then, well, it's also interesting, your deck doesn't have all the full Moxon. And the diversity of Mentor decks, we've already talked about it, is quite striking. That You've got like the small mana Mentor decks, the big mana Mentor decks, and then you have different kinds of mana configurations. You've got Mentor decks with max Mentors, Mentor, mentor decks with fewer Mentors, but big mana, like the Tezzeret slash Steel City Vault versions. Your deck kind of splits the difference in a weird way. You have a, you have a larger land count, Cavern, so you, you don't run all the artifact acceleration. Can you talk about your thinking and experience around that? While I have never run the all, all five Moxon in this build, I did start out with a build that had Jace the Mind Sculptor and Mana Crypt in it. Mana Crypt plays quite well with Mentor, Remora, and Jace, in addition to feeding at the time Treasure Cruise, but now Dig Through Time. I simply found that the hard control role meant that I was losing too many games to the damage from, from Mana Crypt. There's an inherent dissynergy in playing Mystic Remora on one and paying its upkeep on turn two then with a Mana Crypt the Mana Crypt makes, lets you extend the Mystic Remora's life, but doing so exposes you to extra damage from, from the Mana Crypt itself. So I found I was, I was losing too many games, and that the position I wanted to place myself that I've mentioned previously against more of my opponents meant that I just couldn't be dealing that damage to myself. Um, so how do you view your Mentor deck position versus other Mentor decks? Well, the Mystic Remora is a huge advantage against almost any other blue deck, especially those packing Gush. So I feel quite confident in my matchup. I went from initially three Mentors to four because the, the card was amazing and I wanted maximum of it in just about every matchup. And so I think I have an advantage over anyone playing a mixture of, say, Delver creatures and Mentor. Anyone not playing max Mentors, uh, my extra Mentors just roll over things that aren't their Mentors. And I've moved to third Swords to Plowshares in the main because I've found that in almost every matchup in Vintage these days, Swords to Plowshares is an advantage. So I feel very well positioned. The only thing that I would say is that there are some other decks that have st that are still running Jace the Mind Sculptor, which I think is a, a nice bit of trump if you can get it aggressively, or if you get slightly ahead, it, it cements a, an advantage position. But otherwise, I like my list against most of the other Gush-based lists. You, I mean, your deck obviously does create have more variance than some of the other lists, though. It's true, but on the but flip side... Just, your goal is to survive just long enough that, that the variance evens out and then you take over. Uh, yes, I find that that only manifests in the very early turns, basically, because Mystic Remora itself... There are some scenarios where an early Remora will play right into my game plan. There are other scenarios where we play draw go, we trade resources, get into turns 5, 6, and 7, and Remora can be the instigator for another flurry of action that then comes out very hard, or very far in my advantage. Um, 
the the simple truth is is that if remora draws me even two cards in a game i view it as an improvement over preordain once you get past the 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 basis requirements of hey i need to find a specific card where preordain shines more i've had remoras that drew me one or two cards and i feel just fine with that it gets me a similar similar card advantage to preordain to to bridge into the mid game at which point all the rest of my deck construction really shines yeah, it sounds like Remora is not just serving as a card advantage thing, but it's 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 almost like a, a speed bump. It says to your opponent, "Hey, slow down here," you know. So it's it's like a deterrent for your opponent actually engaging activity, which then allows your deck to overcome its variance issue. Yep. So so your 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 Remora serves more than just as a, a sort of a pure card advantage function. Yes, exactly. Um, talk about what how you why you considered playing this over other decks in the format and and uh you know so we're not hiding the ball you got top 16 14th place which is pretty amazing so talk about um yeah why you selected this deck and and what you thought of other options that you considered i did test a number of other control decks i tested landstill decks blue white and blue right blue white red i tested some of the early success that matt murray had with baby jace i tested those decks I tested a couple different configurations of Mentor and Oath and some of the moat control decks that were doing, uh, putting up some, some new surprising results. I tested most of the modern control decks, save Grixis. I never really considered Grixis. But the real thing I wanted to do, which was make good on what you and I said in our preview podcast, which was I wanted to be prepared for workshops. I wanted to have a solid game plan against the other blue decks, and I wanted to not lose to Dredge. So what I did was I took my list, which was even more slanted against blue, it had more counter spells in it, and I moved some sideboard cards into the main. I moved two engineered explosives that were in the sideboard into the main. Stop! Stop there for a second. Let's talk. Let's talk about you know. I, I was hoping that in in sort of interviewing you on your deck that I might be able to have some key takeaways for listeners about their thinking about mentor in the metagame and mm-hmm. and design, but. But you and I have had some really interesting conversations about how you use engineer explosives. Um, why don't you tell me what what you see as the role? Obviously, people who play Landstill and Blue White Control decks have a lot of probably some experience with engineer explosives. But you have this kind of mastery of engineer explosives as a tactic that I think is really impressive. Why don't you tell, talk a little bit about how you use it, how you play it, some tips and tricks with it? In my opinion, I had a whole article about it. Kevin. Yeah, I know. In my opinion, engineered explosives is one of the most versatile cards in vintage right now because of how how much most decks play to the board. There have been times in vintage when engineered explosives wouldn't be able to do anything constructive for you against the old Grixis decks. You know, they would tinker out a Colossus, or they'd play Yawgmoth's Will and blow you out. And the best thing you could do would be blow up some Moxen. Today, most decks, the average deck you play against, is playing to the board with efficient permanence. Workshops, obviously. The case, in my opinion, is obvious. But for those of you who don't know, Engineered Explosives circumvents spheres in a very useful way because of the way Sunburst works. If your opponent has a Sphere of Resistance and a Thorn of Amethyst in play, and you have two lands because that's how Workshops goes, you know, it's turn two and they have two spheres on you, you can play Engineered Explosives where at X equals zero and pay two different colors of mana, in this case, say, a blue and a white, to pay for the Sphere effects. Sunburst will see the mana that you paid for the Sphere in addition to the casting cost, and it will see that you paid two different colors of mana, 
and your sunburst will give you two counters on your engineered explosives. That's the real so, trick. So, so, so for those of you who are listening and maybe momentarily not paying attention because you're driving, <laughs> distracted, just think about that for a second. You can pay zero, X equal to zero with engineered explosives, and yet put two counters on it with two spheres in play. That's pretty awesome. That makes it a very effective anti-sphere card. Mm-hmm. So I take it against in workshops, you basically play engineered explosives as an anti-sphere, anti-thorn tactic. Yes, and it actually got better, what with the hangerback aggro lists, because engineered explosives on zero kills both halves of hangerback walker. <laughs> you mean the, 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 the pre-version and the post-version? That's right. Either side of that coin does engineered explosives destroy. And also, modern workshop hangerback aggro decks have added more two costs to their deck because now they're playing Ravager too. Fascinating. Now, granted, it's not a cure-all because Ravager and hangerback walker are, are inherently card advantageous in certain scenarios. So, but the point is, as you've just alluded to, that it's primarily an anti-sphere tactic. But it's not just for workshops, okay? So I put him in the main because I looked at the other decks I expected to face. It is useful against Delver, very useful against Delver, for a number of reasons. One, their best tactic against you, their, their you know, most proximate to defeating you is turn one Delver, flipping and beating you down, and then they trade resources with you before you can settle, right? Right. Engineer Explosives gives you a very cheap, exceedingly cheap answer to that. It's And it's worth noting, too, in addition to the sphere tricks, that Engineer Explosives has a flexible mana cost that can have the yeah. same result. It's very common, if you need to kill an unflipped Delver and you have the mana to do it, to play Engineered Explosives where X equals 2, but you tap two islands to do it. Put blue-blue into Explosives where X equals 2, which right. means it dodges Mental Misstep, which means modern Delver decks have only four Force of Wills to deal with that answer. And they can't stop it with Flusterstorm or, any, or a number I, of other I things. Saw you, I saw you make a similar play mm-hmm. in the prelim event, and your opponent was confused. <laughs> I think... I think you may have tapped a colorless. Can you do that? You can tap a colorless? That yes, you can do that too. Yes, you could pay you, tap, you could cavern. tap a cavern and an island to play explosive where, where X equals two and yeah. it'll come in with one counter. Yeah, I think you played it for two and you go like this and you put your hand people can't see it, but you put yeah. your hand up and you will you put two. Uh-huh. And and then you put one counter on it, and your opponent was incredibly confused. <laughs> it's important to be very clear with engineered explosives, and if people don't know the tricks, if people don't really pay attention to how sunburst works, they might think you're cheating or trying to deceive them. But <laughs> it is completely correct to announce the, the quantity for X and then put a different number into it when Sunburst happens. And yes, there's lots of reasons to do that. So against Delver, X equals 1 for unflipped Delvers. X equals 0 for flipped Delvers and elemental tokens. You can get major advantage if your Delver opponent has had an aggressive draw. With turn 1 Delver, oh, it flips. Turn 2 Pyromancer and play a Gush. You can just explode for, explode for 0. You are trying to trick but you're not trying to deceive them. <laughs> yes, you're trying you're to trick trying them, to, but not deceive them. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, trying so, to, you're trying to just evade their tactics. So, so for people who just are wondering, <laughs> this this defeats mental misstep. For yeah, yeah, that's the point. Is you have the flexibility to get around mental misstep, and so and it removes basically every threat in a Delver deck. Not all of them at once, of course, but it is flexible removal there. It's also quite good against Oath of Druids. Not many decks in the environment today have a main deck way to win against Oath when Oath resolves. Most decks aren't playing enchantment removal. The Wear Tears, they're all in the sideboard. The Grafdigger's Cage, okay, some decks have one copy with Trinket Mage maybe, but broadly speaking... This gives me an advantage against Oath. I'm, it's like a little bit of pre-boarding against them. Obviously, at two mana, it's a very efficient answer to Oath of Druids. I can sometimes... It, it's not good enough at stopping turn one Orchard Mox Oath, 
but few things are, unfortunately. Still, once if the game progresses to a mature point and I can get to four mana, then it's good enough. And you can play it proactively, and a lot of oath decks don't have a way to remove it, but you got to watch out for Abrupt Decay. Right. At any rate, the, the sum total of the situation is that Engineer Explosives plays a, a strong, important, valuable role in enough matchups that I was comfortable moving it into the main, and specifically it helps my workshop matchup game one. And in the other tactic, which you, you know, I don't know whether you're going to get, you will get full conscious credit for focusing on it, but, but it's uh, Hercules Recall. You've been on Hercules Recall for some time, and the metagame has just oscillated in such a way that it's now positioned to be the best anti-shop technology. And it's in no small part because of Dak Faden. Dak Faden's omnipresence in the format and his efficacy against shop decks from one or two years ago means that they've sought other options. Arcbound Ravager, uh, the Dark... I was going to say, Hangerback is no small part of that as well. Absolutely it is. Hangerback, but contributed to the fact. And the Frobots lists that have fewer spheres, like Rich Shea's list, means that Hercules Recall is easier to cast and ultimately more effective. And so, yeah, absolutely. I've always been a proponent of playing one Hercules Recall in your blue-based control decks in the main with more in the sideboard. And in my opinion, it's just gotten better and better. And I'm bolstering it with other things, but it's a really couple months on the ago, rise. A couple months ago, I would have said that's archaic. <laughs> but, but it's clear post-hanger back, that's definitely not the case. Um, so, so let's transition a little bit to talking about your, your matchups. What did, you, uh, what did you lose to? I lost to Jesse Martin on TPS. And while I would say that I am favored in that matchup, the challenge is that in both of our games, I was on the play. In both games, I went blue-producing land, Mystic Remora, go. And in both games, he went Library of Alexandria, go. (laughs) Yeah, well, your opening against TPS sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, there are not many trumps to Mystic Remora when you're playing a storm-based deck, but library and just not doing anything is one of them. And I didn't have, in game one, I stalled on two lands even, and he noticed that. And so he played some test spells, and then I didn't play a third land, and he just ended up blowing me out after a couple of turns of test spells. Game two, I should have won, I think. But I was in a situation that I had never been in before, and I only it only occurred to me about 72 hours after the fact what I did wrong. And for those of you who play with Mystic Remora, it doesn't come up very much because you, you condition yourself very strongly to the converse, but the drawing for Mystic Remora is optional. Now, 99 times out of 100, you shouldn't skip it. <laughs> but when your opponent is playing TPS, you have one mana, and you haven't drawn Flusterstorm, and they duress you, and you have Mindbreak Trap in your hand, and you cast Brainstorm, and you put Mindbreak Trap on top of your deck, and you let the duress resolve, and they follow up with another duress... That's when you don't draw the card. <laughs> you leave Mindbreak Trap safely on top of your deck with Mystic Remora in play, and they can't kill you without playing a spell and putting that Mindbreak Trap into your hand, but you don't draw the stupid thing to the second duress. You wait till whatever the next spell is. Exactly. Yeah. You, don't, you, don't, you never draw. You don't have to draw. You don't have to draw ever again. You just yeah. wait for them to announce a storm spell, and then you say, oh, here, this card on top of my deck counters that. Yeah. So <laughs> I made that mistake against Jesse. Now, he was way ahead. I don't, I'm don't. i not certain I would have won that game, but I should have countered the tendrils that turn. At any rate, that was my mistake. But he was still way advantaged because of the library. This was a couple turns in at that point. He was way ahead on cards. I lost it, so I lost to Jesse. He had defense grids, too. I mean, that was a sophisticated TPS. Defense grid is a beating. Yeah. Yeah. Then I lost to eventual second-place finisher Bobby Green on Grixis Thieves in a match where I I think I'm favored, you know, maybe eight times out of ten, seven times out of ten. 
but my average starting hand size in our match was 5.5 and they weren't good 5.5s either and he had quite good draws and game one was one of those scenarios where he the last spell in his hand is the fluster storm for my counter when i've got two or three other cards in my hand that but they don't stop the the jace and the tinker he just resolved <laughs> he had some pretty pretty good grixisy hands against me but that was my two losses i went eight and two felt pretty good about my performance it is the most wins i have ever had in the swiss of a vintage tournament which i imagine that several people at this year's champs can say what with the size of the tournament overall i would play the deck again in the same event in a heartbeat well you top eight the event two years ago mm-hmm. how many wins did you have in that event in swiss yeah that event had it had two fewer rounds didn't it, it was only eight rounds so i think i went six one and one in that event wow <laughs> Yeah, so I had as many wins this year as there were rounds in the event two years ago. Incredible. Which is incredible, yeah. Well, looking forward, where do you see the metagame evolving? Well, it's funny. You made a comment earlier about how we predicted that this event would solidify the metagame and and really hone things for our perception of it. But ultimately, we've still got a lot of upheaval in the workshop archetype. A lot of the the decks that are blue-based that bubbled to the top were all decks that included DAC, but it was fully... I don't know, 10 different archetypes, right? You can put DAC in just about any blue-based shell these days, and it, it helps that shell and makes you gives you a little percentage against workshops. But the modern workshop decks are evolving to minimize their weakness against DAC. Four Revokers, four Ravagers, Sword of Fire and Ice. I mean, across the board, Triskelion, we're almost to a point where they can just fill their deck with cards that are bad to DAC. <laughs> A couple more printings and maybe they can. The point is, is I don't think anything has really solidified. Brian Kelly's win has thrown, I think, Oath proponents into a cocked hat. <laughs> if I was an Oath player right now, I would seriously look at his list and consider borrowing technology from it. Maybe not the whole thing, but certain parts. Right. And I, I don't know. I just think that I think everything is still wide open. I think I could have I, I could have won this event if I had one fewer loss. I feel like I could have won that top eight, what with my list. And I feel like a number of other people could too. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Now, I thought your list was well positioned and it was it really was designed to strike at weak uh, pressure points in the format as well. And you were one of how many people playing a list like yours? Just like a handful? I mean, there weren't how many Pyromancer Gush lists were there? There was a lot of Pyromancer Gush, but I don't think there was very many with like mine at all. Not, might like, have been, not like yours. I might have been the only, probably was the only one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I played I played a deck that was actually the very first Pyromancer deck I played. As mm-hmm. soon as Pyromancer was printed, I was all over it. Now, it's funny to, to look back at it, but there was actually a huge debate as to whether Pyromancer was a good card in Vintage. I remember Mark Lanigra coming out saying that card is not playable. Uh, it's interesting, actually, looking back, how many people were really critical of Pyromancer when it came out. Uh, now, we jumped all over it. In our podcast review, which was for M14, the summer of 2013, I am not 100% certain of this, but I'm fairly confident that I outpredicted you in terms of how many pyromancers there would be. I was all over it. And I designed a deck immediately that was basically my Grow Talk deck from 2007 with Pyromancer instead of Quirin Dryad. And of course, the big problem is that, as everyone knows, in 2008, Merchant Skull, Ponder, and Brainstorm were all restricted. And it was those, it was the, for people who are, have gotten to Vintage in the last couple of years, in 2007, 2008, you could basically play a Gush deck with four Gush, four 
Merchant Scroll, for Brainstorm, for Ponder, and then Fast Pond and Yawgmoth's Will. And what that allows you to do is to consistently combo out with the Gush Bond engine. So as soon as you assemble Fast Bond and a Gush, you could pretty much combo out in a linear fashion from Fast Bond, Gush, Yawgmoth's Will, replay all your Fast Bonds, tutor up tendrils, win the game, and or Time Walk, Tinker, or and or Query and Dryad Time Walk and win the game. And the restriction of all those cards basically killed the Gush Bond engine, which is why when they decided to unrestrict Gush, it wasn't an incredibly controversial thing. Because with Merchant Scroll and Ponder and Brainstorm restricted, that whole package of like 27 cards was was still in non-existence. But what they did in 2013 was they printed Young Pyromancer, which is just by far a better Quirin Dryad. But more importantly, in fact, at the time, for me, for this deck, they unrestricted regrowth. And regrowth serves a virtually identical function in the deck as Merchant Scroll. Virtually, because there's obviously some huge difference. But in many respects, actually, regrowth is better than Merchant Scroll. So when you're gush bonding out, meaning following that arc that I just described, Merchant Scroll is, so let's just, you know, illustrate it. Turn one, Tropical Island, Fast Bond, land, float a mana, gush, right? In this position, you have a blue mana floating, two lands in play, you replay your lands, you have three mana. Merchant Scroll right here, you can see what it does. It uses up the two mana. It, it is mana neutral, but it draws you two cards, right? So you're continuing to dig through your deck to find more cantrips and more draw. Now, when Brainstorm and Ponder were unrestricted, you would just ponder or brainstorm with the additional mana, and you'd keep finding gushes, and you'd be able to gush, Merchant Scroll gush, until you found Yawgmoth's Will. Mm-hmm. Regrowth functions identically to that. You regrowth, two mana, same as Merchant Scroll, but you just replay the gush that you just played. Obviously, regrowth has a lot of advantages and disadvantages. Regrowth can regrowth a countered Yawgmoth's Will. You can regrowth a Force of Will. You can regrowth Ancestral Recall and Time Walk, and you could Time Walk a bunch of times. Regrowth also has insane synergy with Young Pyromancer that Regrowth doesn't have with Quirion Dryad, because Quirion Dryad only triggers on non-green, non-artifact, non-colorless spells. Mm-hmm. So Regrowth is actually insane with Pyromancer. So that was the Pyromancer deck that I built. I did very well with it in 2013, and uh, I enjoyed playing it. But I remember when I published my article on Pyromancer Grow, when I called it Pyro Grow, um, a lot of people were skeptical. And it was like a week or two later that a, some, a bunch of people played that deck at Gen Con and didn't do as well as they thought. And people were very critical of Pyromancer, and Mark Lanigra didn't even think it was a playable card. <laughs> you were at that Gen Con. Um, but a lot of, there was a big controversy at the time. Now, I think that controversy is over. Pyromancer is clearly one of the best cards in the format. It's proven itself. Creatures in the format. Creatures in the format. Bolstered by some printings since then, too. For sure. But but I would just want to point out that um, in terms of the Gush Bond engine, unrestricted regrowth and preordain help compensate for the la- loss of the restriction of the other three cards. Now, certainly it's not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But it does give you enough of a critical mass of cards that when you play turn one Fast Bond, there's a very good chance that you can combo out that turn. And point of fact, that's exactly what happened during my Vintage Championship experience this year. <laughs> Both times that I had turn one Fast Bond, I won the game on the spot. Nice. The first time it happened was against Merfolk. So just so people aren't lost, I played that deck again this year with a couple <laughs> of modifications. I haven't played it since 2013, but I played it this year. Um, and in the first match I won in turn one, I was playing against Merfolk, and it was a friend of Joel Lim's. In fact, he claims that he was the person who was responsible for turning Joel onto the Merfolk archetype. Mm-hmm. It was in the middle of the tournament. He goes turn one land curse catcher, and I misstep his curse catcher. And then I go, my, I'm on the draw. I draw a card, and I drew the fat, the uh, polluted delta I needed to get the tropical island to play turn one fast bond. And I had two gushes in my hand, and with regrowth and my cantrips, I was easily able to cobble out from there. I just gushed, gushed, 
uh, Regrowth Gush, Yogmos Will, or Tutor for Yogmos Will, Yogmos Will, Gush Gush again, Tutor for Tendrils Win. Mm-hmm. Um, in the other game I won in turn one was against um, Josh Rabbits. And it was funny because he goes, he was on the play and he goes, Volcanic Island, go. And I go, um, okay, I'll go Tropical Island, Fast Bond. And I had a regrowth in my hand. So if he counters it, I would just regrowth it next turn, then try and go off on turn three. But uh, so I go, Gush. And I go, Gush again. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. Uh, and I just, you know, just went off and I said, uh, I said, is it okay if I just do some shortcuts here in terms of land drops? He said, yeah, I'll stop you if I need to. <laughs> but he didn't play a single spell that game. I won. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, when people look at the deck, I, what's critical is that I run regrowth in a position where many people would probably play dig through time in the modern environment. But my deck is designed that I actually use every card in my graveyard when I yog will. So there's really no room for dig at all. I mean, not only do I regrowth and have Cabal Therapy, but when I play Yawgmoth's Will, it is a Yawgmoth's Will deck. I often, it's often the case that there's almost nothing left in my graveyard when I'm done Yawgmoth'sing Will. The only time that the only time that there might be something left in there is like a fetch land where I don't want to play a fetch land because I'll take two damage with the fast bond, and I already have plenty of lands. So yeah, that's, right. Yeah, that's you. I, I, you probably had a significant percentage of the turn one wins in the tournament as a whole. <laughs> there were only about 20 people or so playing a deck that's even capable of that between Belcher, Pyrogush and Colbergush. And I was looking through their, their finishing points, only about a third of those people got more than one or two match wins <laughs> in the event, <laughs> which suggests it doesn't, it's not concrete, but it suggests that there were probably, there were probably fewer than 10 people that, that got more than three wins with a deck that could even do that. So my guess is there were probably fewer than 10 turn one wins in this event. That's pretty that's, funny and that's awesome. Inter- that's interesting to speculate about. How far the format has come. Well, it's, you know, we, we can laugh about the turn one wins, but part of it is I wanted a deck that had, I, I, in, I wrote an article, a tournament report for Vintage Magic, a brief tournament report. But one of the criteria for selecting this deck is I actually wanted something that had a potential to combo out. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because a couple of reasons. One is that in a field this big, I often feel like you you can get clogged up on the ground pretty easily, especially against a lot of budget decks. Where you know, even if a, I'm playing a pyro, powered pyromancer deck, an unpowered one could could beat me with a just a better draw of you know the removal burn pyromancer and count force of will or whatever yeah. you know so i felt like really strongly i wanted the capacity to combo out and and so i really considered playing with key vault in both this deck and and in a grixis deck you know i i really considered those kinds of cards because i felt that being able to win in a single turn was be incredibly valuable and in fact Unfortunately, I had two draws, so my final record, I ended up having one loss, which is the Josh Rabbits, and two draws. Both of the case draws, those are matches, had I had at least one more turn, probably, I, I believe I've had one more turn in both cases, I would have won. Mm-hmm. In one case, it's very clear. In the other case, I think there's a, I had a more than 50% chance I would have won. In the first case was a match I played against Brian Palace, and we had a time extension. Um, so even though it went to time, it wasn't just slow, it wasn't slow play. They put me in that <laughs> Uh, but it was a really tricky position because we had very little time for game three, even though we had a time extension. And I time walked within extra turns so that I would be taking turns three and five. And turn three, I played Gush. 
Um, I had I played Gushdak Faden and stole his Seat of the Synod. He had, in turn five, one card in his hand, which was a mental misstep, and I knew what it was. Um, in turn five, though, I set up I set up the perfect scenario to try and win on turn five of time, and I thought for sure I was going to be able to do it. I mean, it's the kind of scenario that I believe, really, eight times, eight times out of ten, I probably win at that turn. Mm-hmm. But what happened was he had one card in his hand, which I knew what it was, misstep, and I, w- I, w- I played literally this turn. I played the following card. Gush, Gush, Ancestral Recall, Ponder, um, Activate Dak Faden, and probably one other card at least. And I still was not able to find Fastball with mm-hmm. all that card. And, um, oh, and I played Jogmoss Will as well, sorry. And then I replayed all those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I didn't get to replay all of them because I think I played, I think I played the Ancestral, the Ponder post Will and maybe the Ancestral as well. But I don't remember for sure. But I definitely played Gush's post Will. But I couldn't find Fastball. And um, the situation was that he was at 17 life, and I could only generate eight storm with it, and have the mana to play tendrils, and and that would and that was the situation. So I couldn't, and that includes like doing stupid things like countering my own spells to generate storm. Um, so I could only kill do 16 points, or I could play additional spells but not have the mana to play the tendrils, trying to dig for the fast bond, which mm-hmm. is what I was having to do. Was unable to find it. Um, now the only two things I th- could think of doing differently was the turn that I played. Uh, the, on turn three, I could have not gushed, and I could have not activated D- Dak to steal his land. I could have just activated Dak on myself to try and dig for fast bond or demonic tutor or vamp. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, I, if I didn't gush on turn three, Brian DeMars thinks I would have won on turn five because I would have obviously been able to do more that turn. Two more um, men of that turn, sure. Yeah, two more men of that turn. Um, but I did. You, it's not like I didn't replay a land. You know when I. <laughs> Gosh, on turn three. So um, you know, it's just hard to say. Uh, it was just a very disappointing finish because I thought for sure I was going to win that game. And if he played, if he, I could bait him, I could probably could have baited him in the misstep, but I was really confident that I was going to win. So I projected that confidence, I think. And maybe if I like played the misstep of the fast bond and been like, you know, kind of like, God, I hope this resolves, you know, maybe I could have. <laughs> Could have gotten him to, to try and counter it, and then I would have won. But honestly, in that situation, I just think I'm going to win anyway. Right. The other the other match I drew was um, a match where um, it was against one of the the J- Jace Vrin Prodigy decks. Where in game three, um, I had the chance to win. I tried to bait him with uh, I had Fastbond Ancestral and Yogmas Will, and uh, I just got he, he successfully countered the um, Ancestral, but I just didn't have time to execute i needed at least one more turn to build up to, to win really win the game um but i could i i yog willed and ancestral and fast bonded but i just did not have enough quite enough gas to get there i just need a little bit more juice just a little and against my loss was against um josh rabbits and i should mention people probably don't know this but i i did play with the cabal therapy package and three probes and um I my hand against Josh Rabbits game one I I told you I won in game turn one game two he comboed me out with turn one thirst for knowledge turn two tinker and all sorts of other stuff and game in tr- game three I had an early I had everything go really my way I had a um an early pyromancer I baited with brainstorm to resolve an ancestral early on I think I regrowth the ancestral and I got into a situation where he had three cards in hand and his mana was his mana was Library of Alexandria Black Lotus volcanic island yeah i think that was basically it and he had three cards in hand and my hand included gush ataxian probe force of will and something else but basically what i did was i put probe on the stack and everything that happened happened with the probe on the stack 
my hand had Gush, Force, Misstep, and Probe. And it may have had a couple other cards. In any case, it, but they were non-blue. In any case, I decided to lead with Probe. And this was this was the biggest mistake of the entire match, if not my entire tournament. Because I led with Probe, and he revealed Notion Thief, Pyroblast, and Dig Through Time. And I drew, a, I drew a land. So I cast Gush, and he played Pyroblast, which I misstepped. Um, but I was in a position where I, I had to force his dig when he played it the next turn, pitching the other force that I had drew off my gush. So I lost two forces when I should have lost only one because I would have been able to, um, if I didn't play probe, I would have played, I would have played lead with gush. And if he plays, he can't play both the pyroblast and the motion thief. He, he, his hand was pyroblast, motion thief, and, um, dig, as I later found out. But he can't play both Notion Thief and Pyroblast because he only has Lotus in Volcanic Island and the colorless mana. So he can't play both because he needs to generate a black mm-hmm. for Notion Thief. So he has to select between the Pyroblast and or the Notion Thief. If I led with Gush, which is actually the rule in my book, in my book it says always lead with Gush, my chapter two, mm-hmm. um, in terms of sequencing with other spells. If I lead with Gush, he either plays, he plays, um, if he plays Notion Thief, I force Pitching Probe. If he plays... Pyroblast, I play the misstep in my hand. Then I draw the other force, and uh, I'll be able to um, force his uh, dig and and be fine. You know, without, in other words, I'll have countered, but actually what he ended up doing was he ended up playing Pyroblast. So what he would have done is Pyroblasted the gush. I would then, like he did, in fact, do. And then I would have misstepped it, and then I would have had the force for his um, dig, which would prevent him from playing the uh, Notion Thief. And then I would have used the other force on his Notion Thief. Um, or I would have just ignored it because I was I probably would have won the game with tokens thereafter. But I ended up losing the game to Time Vault when I had Flusterstorm in my hand and I had him at one life. <laughs> so I, the way in which I sequenced Probe vis-a-vis Gush left me with one less force that I would have been able to use later in the game. And that was all I needed to win the game. How did you feel about the Probe therapy package in the end? Well, you know, we had a long podcast on Probe, and my opinion on Probe has not changed one bit. In fact, I think it's been reinforced. I really don't like Probe, but Cabal Therapy is... Um, I, I'm not really convinced whether that package is better than playing with the two Pyroblasts that I used to run or have mm. been running in that art in that shell. Um, I, I feel like Therapy is really well positioned because it hits things like the uncounterable, like the uh, uncounterable, uh, what do you call it, um, like... Uh, Supreme Verdict, cards like that. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I, I just, I'm not a fan of Probe, but Therapy is awesome. And I feel like maximizing Therapy requires Probe. I'm not sure if that's the case. I feel like most of the time I name I Therapy, I know what I need to name. Mm-hmm. I made one mistake, I think, that's notable, stands out in my mind with Therapy, and I was playing as the Belcher deck, and I played Turn 1 Therapy, and I named Force of Will. Lord knows why I did that. <laughs> and he, he had no Force of Will, but he had Belcher. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, it is, yeah, anyway. That, that Belcher match was actually very fun, because in the, the second game, I, I ended up winning the match, but in the second game, he mulliganed to five, and he goes, on the play, he goes, Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, pass, and I probed him, and I saw Belcher, packed, packed. <laughs> and he goes, turn to Belcher, and I go, and it was game two, I guess I go, I had Force of Will, but I can't force it, obviously, so I go, Ancient Grudge, your Belcher, he goes, packed, I go, force it, he goes, packed, and then he upkeeps, kills me. But, um, <laughs> but very, very, very good hand of five for a Belcher pilot, huh? <laughs> no kidding. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it was, I, I really loved the deck I played. I thought it was really po- well-positioned, you know, much like you said. And my deck was... Um, one of the things I love about playing black is Leyline of the Void is so good against... Um, so good against Dredge, and when you play black, you actually can hard cast Leyline, which is really yeah. non-trivially important in the mid and late game, when, like, they've destroyed or bounced one of your other Leylines. Or even if they haven't, it's nice to be able to hard cast another one. Just yeah. Extra As but we've seen in a number of scenarios, a single hate card against Dredge is frequently not sufficient. But to the point that you were making earlier about the diversity of the format or the viability of a lot of strategies, I felt that there... I don't always feel this way, but I felt like there were a lot of viable decks I could have played. Mm-hmm. There were multiple decks I was seriously considering. And that's always a really good feeling, both personally, but also about the format in a general sense. So that was, that's, you know, it was a great event, and I really enjoyed the deck I played. And I felt like, you know, just like you, if I had been in the top eight, I felt like I would have had really good chances to win as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm grateful for the fact that we both had pretty good performances. It's too bad neither of us made top eight this year, but... Bodes well for the future, I would say. I certainly hope so. Let's cover some other interesting things that came up in the course of the event. Sadly, to counteract all of the superlatives that we had for the way the event was run, there were a couple of scenarios that came up that that didn't reflect well on the conduct of the event. But, well, Steve, you've got some things you wanted to call out. What did you want to focus on? Well, I don't want to overstate this or exaggerate this, but my perception is that there was a greater than normal number of ruling irregularities in this event that has not been the case since this event has been eternal weekend i thought abe corson as a judge head judge a couple years ago did a really good job of getting the rules right Mm -hmm. and i just you know i felt like the head judge in this particular event was not quite as accurate in terms of the rules and we'll mention a couple things but um one was in rich shea's match in round three against vito picozzi cozo or picozzi i do you know it is it's Picozo. Picozo, my bad. Uh, against Vito, um, there was an interaction between Trinisphere and Replicate, and in particular Shattering Spree. And um, the judge ruled that Vito had to pay four mana to Replicate Shattering Spree to hit two targets. Under a Trinisphere. Under a Trinisphere. And as we know, that is just completely incorrect. Trinisphere and Sphere Resistance are very different with respect to Replicate. So Trinisphere only requires that you spend a total of three mana on the spell in total. Mm-hmm. So you can pay red, red, red under a Trinisphere and cast Shattering Spree and destroy three artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Sphere of Resistance, you would have to pay red, red, one, and you would only be able to destroy two artifacts. So for red, 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 under a Trinisphere, you can destroy three artifacts. With the Sphere of Resistance, you can only destroy two. And the judge said he had to um, pay four, and then he appealed to the head judge, and the head judge said the same thing. And if you watch the match, if Vito had had Swords to Plowshares in his hand, I believe he would have been able to win that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, good chance he could have been able to win that game. Um, or a number of other cards in hand. But we can't exactly tell what he had in hand from the, from the video. No, we, what we know is that at the time he resolved the replicate for four mana, he had access to four mana that turn. If he had been able to play it properly for three mana, he would still at least have been able to play the preordain that was in his hand. Absolutely. He, had, he would have had a Tundra or something else untapped. Mm-hmm. Um, right, he could have played preordain, which could have been you know quite important. 
Could have. Uh, so I just think that's really unfortunate. And and Rich Shea was the opponent. And Rich Shea said that um, in his post, he's in in speaking with him, he said that that he honestly didn't know the answer, but that um, he said that he experienced playing it on on Magic Online. And Magic Online, he thought, made you pay additional mana. Now I don't really understand Rich's explanation because there was actually, in fact, a bug on Magic Online recently mm-hmm. uh, this past summer that was corrected sometime I think in June or July. But the bug did not make you pay four mana to replicate once. Rather, the way the bug worked is it made me. I was the one who reported it and got it corrected. It made me pay red, red three <laughs> to replicate once. So wow. it didn't make four. It made me pay five to replicate once. To turn turn a sphere into a super sphere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Cards even worse. So jeez. Te- technically, Rich Shea's explanation for magic, how it worked on Magical Line is not accurate. But I, I mean, I trust him that he wasn't trying to. You know, he honestly didn't know. But we had a, a thread on the Mana Drain about it, and so anyway, there was that. Um, Roland, po- Roland Chang also had a, a troubling post on Facebook about a scenario. Why don't you describe that ruling? Well, I won't read Roland's whole post word for word, but the scenario involves Tangle Wire in a workshop mirror. And his, uh, Roland's opponent played out a handful of permanents on the first turn involving a Lodestone Golem and a Chalice for Zero to which Roland responded with a turn one workshop tangle wire. And Roland's opponent untapped and drew his card before allowing Roland to say anything during his upkeep. So Roland noticed and called the judge over. And the table judge, not table judge, but the, the judge on the spot, ruled that, <laughs> and I need to get this right, the floor judge, I should say, ruled that we back the game up, tap down the four permanents, and he would place a random card in his hand on top of his library. Roland's opponent appealed that ruling to the head judge. The head judge ruled that opponent could choose whether or not the trigger happened because it was a missed trigger, to which Roland's opponent chose not to have it happen. And that's really... I don't know if they ultimately ruled that his opponent would have to put a random card back or not. But the the simple truth is is that Roland's missed trigger resulted in two different rulings, and it's it's not clear to me whether or not the head judge ruling is correct in that case. Yeah, I don't honestly. I mean, so I don't know exactly what the the correct answer here is either. I, I will say that um, I will say that I find that ruling troubling. Um, I understand that in the last couple of years there have been shifting both full rules and philosophies on mistriggers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, things like Chalice of the Void triggers and Dark Confidant triggers have been treated differently in recent years than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. And in particular, they're considered optional triggers. And, you know, it used to be, I think it was like failure to maintain game state and then um, both players got a warning and you reround the game, etc. But then it was just they just were sick and tired of trying to enforce that, so they made it op- sort of optional in quotation marks and then in mm-hmm. actually in point of fact optional so if people play cards into their own chalice of the void for example intentionally it's i don't even think it's cheating in the technical sense anymore unless your opponent points it out i don't know if it is or not it may be a gray area no it's not that's that's one of the things that happened was the missed triggers don't punish both players now yeah but 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 one of the ambiguities in that has always been for me what if you can establish that the player did it intentionally well intent then intentionally that, breaking the rules always falls under the heading of yeah of, cheating. yeah of cheating yeah. anyway it's it's um you know so but this does not strike me as a, the same thing this is not in a uh tangle wire is not an optional trigger in my opinion my opinion <laughs> 
I mean, it's not the kind of trigger that you have with a, uh, you know, a chalice of the void or whatever, or a counterbalance. I could be wrong about that, but that's I, my... Well, there's lowercase optional and there's uppercase optional, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it is certainly not lowercase optional, but right. the question is, is um, it, all triggers that basically at this point, if both players blow by them, then, and don't notice, I mean... The, the controller of the trigger can get a warning, but ultimately they don't always rewind the game state depending on how much time has elapsed. Right. This is one of those situations where it, we've got a, a, a second-hand account. Well, it's a first-hand account from one side of the table, but it has sure. a lot, a lot, a lot to do with how quickly Roland's opponent progressed through his turn. And, for example, whether or not he even stopped and asked Roland about priority during his upkeep, right? Yeah. Because you can move quickly but still acknowledge your upkeep. You can move quickly and say, okay, I untap, upkeep, look at your opponent, and then draw, right? That's one way. Another way is to just untap and draw. And no matter how fast you do that, you could take two minutes to untap and draw. But if you never acknowledge anything about your upkeep and never say anything, then you're still not giving your opponent an option to acknowledge their own triggers, right? I could just untap and tank for 30 seconds and draw my card. And I didn't give my opponent an option to, you know, so we have these conventions in magic where you're supposed to acknowledge priority at the very least. Yeah. And so we don't know what we really don't know from Roland's account what his opponent truly did. That's that's true. But in, in, but the game hadn't progressed. It only progressed like a fraction of a, of a turn, you know? So, well, that's why I'd say, I don't know if the head judge's ultimate ruling is really correct. The head judge acknowledged that they would back up. But the choice of whether or not the trigger actually happened was then given to That's, Roland's opponent. I mean, if I was a workshop player, I'd be furious at that ruling. But, you know, the, sure. the, 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 it would be good if anyone's listening to tell us exactly if that's the correct ruling or not. I mean, it strikes me as problematic at best, absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, now, speaking of, speaking yeah. of under, acknowledging things, you had an interesting scenario involving tapping a mox for Tinker, I think it was. Close. Um, yeah, in one of my matches, uh, in fact, this was the match against Brian Palace that caused us to have a time extension. This is the scenario incident that had caused the time extension. Um, my opponent had a mox jet in play after resolving time twister, played a mox jet. I believe it was, he resolved it for, after time twister, but he could have put it into play before. Mm-hmm. In any case, he cast and Brian is a very clear and precise player. I mean, every thing, every move he made was very methodical. Um, I thought impressively so. Um, so he plays repeal targeting Mox Jet, and he physically picks up the Mox Jet and puts it into his hand without turning, tapping, or really adjusting the position of the Mox Jet in any way. He puts it into his hand, and then, in my opinion, of course, this is one side of the story, and as we know, these scenarios always have a Rashomon-type effect, right? <laughs> we'll tend to see the same thing through different lenses, but in my opinion, there was a distinct pause, you know, as he was thinking. And But before he drew a card, still thinking... Clear he was trying to think about, you know, counting or doing something. You know, he said, after the pause, he said, float black mana. And I said, uh, don't think you can do that after you have already put the card into your hand. I believe you have to actually tap it. Mm-hmm. Mana. You have to respond to the spell. Yeah, I mean, he could have, yeah, if he repeat, plays repeal, he could replay repeal, targeting the thing, and tap the mox. Or he could just tap the mox before repealing it, which is what I think most people would probably do. Mm-hmm. But putting the card in your hand without tapping it, without indicating that you're going to tap it, and at, and then making a pause and saying, float black mana. Mm-hmm. Even if he hadn't made a pause, in my opinion, that's not generating black mana. Right. <laughs> you know, if I'm playing Gush. I had 
I should, I should, I say, I would have to say, in my opinion, float the mana before I put the lands in my hand. Mm -hmm. If I'm not going to physically tap them, I, I need to say that before I put the lands in my hand. You know, yeah. but I would, I, as a matter of practice, of course, tap the lands before putting them in my hand. And so I talked with, I explained the situation to the judge. Brian explained his opinion, his situation to the judge, and the judge ruled that because he had not drawn yet the card from repeal, the the repeal had not fully resolved, and therefore he could tap the, the mocks. Now, Josh Rabbits was sitting right next to us, and he later told me he thought that was the incorrect ruling. Yeah. I don't know what the correct ruling is. I appeal it to the head judge, and the head judge aff uh, affirmed the decision of the, the field judge, hmm. uh, the table judge. So I don't know what the right one is, but it strikes me as odd, to say the least. <laughs> well, if you are going to, if you're not going to respond to the spell, um, the, th the thing about that particular scenario is that there are specific and discrete windows that you have if you're if you're playing correctly to tap the mox for mana. One is just do the mox beforehand, right? You said right. tap mox, play repeal, fine. The other one is play repeal, hold priority, tap the mox for mana. Absolutely. If he and pass then pass priority to you as the opponent. Right. If he plays repeal with the mox untapped and then passes to you, there is no f subsequent window, unless you play a spell, which you didn't. Right. But there is no other window to tap for mana, because as soon as he passes, yeah. that's the last type priority he's going to have before resolution. That, that, was, that was my argument, that he yeah. was passing priority. Um, and putting the card into your hand is a, a secondary... Yeah. I, I assume he passed priority to you and allowed you to say okay or uh, resolves or something, right? Yes. I mean, in, in that sense, it is different from the gush scenario, because I, I mean, I do think that the analog to it is gush in some respects. Because but Gush is I, different because it's unannounced. Right, it's, part, it's part of the cost. Yeah. So you don't actually get a chance to... Re but, but imagine, though, just imagine, what, any of our listeners, <laughs> you're playing against me, right? And I cast Gush, and I return two lands to my hand. That were untapped. That were untapped. I put them into my hand without adjusting them in any way. And I pause. And before I draw the cards with Gush, or, you know, I say, float, blue, blue. I... I suspect that you would probably call the judge on me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you you were right though. The fact that it's part of announcement is is um it makes it different though because it's all sort of one action. You can the the mana floating and the putting them in your hands, the announcing the spell is all one thing that your opponent doesn't get to interact with, right? There's no point in there where your opponent should have a priority or anything. Gosh, that's right. Yes. That's right. In the case of repeal, it's yeah. totally different. Exactly. If you announce repeal and that mox is untapped, if both players pass, that mox doesn't get tapped before anything else happens. But what I'm saying is that I don't think that I should be allowed to put lands in my hand with gush without tapping them and say float mana. It, and you don't even get priority anyway. So in it, my opinion, it's technically incorrect, but I think right. a judge would rule that that's okay because it's all part of the the same announcement action. Okay. okay. It, it so, is technically wrong, but I think a judge would give it to you. Well, what I'm saying is there's multiple reasons that that's wrong. Both because I <laughs> yeah. think you know you should be required to announce either the float or tap, and yeah. then also pass you pass priority. Yeah. So. I agree. I agree with you. What he did is is technically wrong, and I think that going to resolution, the judge somehow pointing to the fact that he hasn't drawn a card from repeal yet seems like a completely inconsequential aspect <laughs> and he's already put the card well, into his hand if he's putting the card yeah. into his hand the, the repeal has begun to resolve partly resolved yeah. yeah so the fact that he hasn't drawn the card is immaterial he's the yeah, point he's, is we're resolving the spell the fact that it's resolved means that priority has been passed to me yeah. and back again yeah exactly you know, and i have to say though that that play actually is made a gigantic difference because at the end of the turn he, what he ended up doing was he repealed it again 
and then he played Yawgmoth's Will, and then he repealed, repealed Tendrils, and he had both exactly enough mana and exactly enough Storm to kill me. Yeah. And had he not done that, I believe I would have won that game. That's annoying. And Yeah, so... Now, I have a less consequential scenario to add to this. It happened in the prelim, but it's not limited to just this event. It happens all the time, and it's because of misdirection. The public service announcement, misdirection has one target. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, tattoo that on the inside of your forehead. Misdirection has one target. Just like Cobble Therapy, if your opponent asks you, what are you changing the target of that spell to? That is a tacit move to resolution. Ah. So if, if, I play, if I play Cobble Therapy on you and your opponent says, all right, what are you naming? They're moving to resolution because the naming of the spell is only on it's resolution. On resolution. Yeah. If I misdirect your force of will and you say, all right, what are you changing the target that's, to? We're moving to resolution. I should mention that's not the case for regrowth. Though. Regrowth targets a mon announcement, not resolution. That's absolutely true. But yeah. the the changing the choosing of a second target for whatever spell you're misdirecting happens during resolution on misdirection. Very good point. And that very, that very throws people, including judges, for a loop. I had a scenario where I played Gush. Um, I take that back. My opponent played Gush. I played Flusterstorm on the Gush. My opponent played misdirection on Flusterstorm. And Flusterstorm further complicates the matters, which is part oh, of the yeah. reason for a judge call because my my opponent chose to do it uh, with the trigger still on the stack from Storm. That added to the confusion. But when I asked my opponent, okay, what would you like to... I was I was preparing to resolve misdirection <laughs> because it, he shouldn't have played it. It was a terrible misdirection. It was going to accomplish nothing. He didn't put two and two together in beforehand. But so I asked him, okay, what would you like to change the target of Flusterstorm to? And he, he wanted to tell me one of the other copies of Flusterstorm. But I had previously clarified very clearly with him that he was doing it in response to the trigger. Yeah, and wow. so Flusterstorm further complicated <laughs> the matter. But so the, picture this: the stack is Gush, Flusterstorm, Storm Trigger, Misdirection. Sure, sure. Yes. We call the judge over and we explain the stack. Judge is not confused about the stack. I said, yeah. I said, what are my opponent's options in terms of choosing new targets for this Flusterstorm? Yeah. <laughs> at which Both the judge kind of Misdirection. Right. At which the yeah. The judge kind of furrowed his brow and he said, well, I said, in my eyes, there's only three spells on the stack, right? Yeah. Says, yeah. I said, so what are his options for misdirection? I, he said, well, there's the gush. I said, no. <laughs> the gush is the current target for this fluster storm. He can't right. change that's, the target to exactly. gush. Yeah. The it was comical. Yes, that's amazing. It was a comedy of errors. I've had, I mean, I've seen countless errors with fluster storm. So yeah. I don't get into that. But yeah. I will mention one other in respect, not at this tournament, but there was something that came up the NYSE the last year, not this year, where um, in the top eight, my opponent played the... What's the blue Croson Reclamation? Wipeout. No, no, no. Cros- no. You said Croson Reclamation, not Grip. You're talking about Memory's Journey. Yeah, Memory's Journey. Uh-huh. And um, I think it says, like, shuffle up the two target cards mm-hmm. in your graveyard into your, your library. Yep, yep. And I just... I asked... I mean... Uh, I just asked the judge, I said, if I try to misdirection this, is it, can I target this with misdirection? I believed I knew the answer, but I just wanted to double check it. And the answer is you can if if they target no cards in their graveyard. Or only a single card. No, no. You, it has to be zero cards because the targets... Oh, hold yeah, on a it sec. It has to be zero. You're right. Because it's target player shuffles yeah. up to three target cards. So only if the three target cards is zero and the only target is the player could you misdirect right. it. To your rule. Misdirection. <laughs> tattoo that on your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's funny that you mentioned it because during the Swiss, I had forgotten up until just now, but... Um, 
but I had a similar situation revolving Gaia's Blessing, where an opponent cast Gaia's Blessing on me to try and get some cards out of my out of my discard pile. Discard pile, nice. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing I just wanted to mention that I thought was very irregular, Kevin, and I don't know if you know about this, but I got paired against Josh Pachusek, who is known very well in the Northeast as being a, a really talented, top-notch player and a uh, pioneer uh, at least in recent years for Lansdale and uh, an advocate for Lansdale. I was really excited to get paired against him because we go to these events to, to play amazing players. Mm-hmm. And in the first game, it was one of my best plays. I uh, I think he was, I don't remember who was on the play, although as I tell the story, it will become evident. But uh, I uh, I had Ancestral Recall. I had a really strong hand with Ancestral Recall, Dak, Gush in my opening hand, and a Force of Will. And I... Um, wanted to resolve my ancestral. I think it had it had at least three lands. I wanted to resolve ancestral recall. I must have been on the play, and I played a land. I played a dual land instead of my fetch land, or I I, I don't think I had a basic, but I could have fetched out a basic mm-hmm. instead of the fetch land. And the reason was because I wanted him to um I wanted him to waste the strip mine a, a, a wasteland on it if he had it so that he would be less able to counter my ancestral recall when I played mm-hmm. it. There was more to it than that, because obviously that en- enough is not a reason to do that. But um, that's exactly what happened. I think I think I may have led with Brainstorm or something. In any case, I played a dual land. He wasted it, in fact, because he wanted to you know, naturally keep me off Gush. And I that actually allowed me to resolve my turn two ancestral uh, off the basic, and then I was played turn three Gush Dak. Mm-hmm. And just as I was playing Gush Dak on turn three, the judge came over. We're probably about five, seven, actually eight minutes in the match, mm-hmm. seven minutes in the match. And I resolved the ancestral. I was playing Gush Dak, and my hand was unbelievably good. <laughs> I felt so, so proud of myself for playing the way I was playing. And the judge said that we were going to be repaired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was disappointed to say the least. I, um, I appealed the decision to the head judge. The head judge affirmed it. Apparently, about six or so, a half dozen or so um, tables were going to be repaired because one person had been accidentally dropped or something. Mm-hmm. They had to redo you know, all these people who were already paired and playing. Um, and I don't know what the proper protocol is there. I assume that it's within the discretion of the tournament organizer and the head judge to make that decision. Probably. But I also assume it's within dis- the discretion of the head judge to not do that. <laughs> And, and that yeah. there's probably they probably have options, and I felt that that was incredibly disruptive uh, to the flow of the event, the experience of the event, and and really troubling. Yeah, you know, you ha- you are a magnet to strange pairing situations, aren't you? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I'm with you. I it's it's very disruptive. It's a mistake, obviously, up front. But the question is, is it also a mistake then to 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 undo matches in progress? And right. It'd be one thing if we hadn't started. Yeah. I but, as as I'm not a tournament organizer, so I don't I can't say which harms the integrity of the event more. But it seems like a much simpler solution to just give that person a buy and let yes. the round just continue as is. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't know. With your with the solution that they came up with, they get more actual legitimate rounds of magic played. I mean but it's the disruption of everyone who you know who's already yeah, involved. It's pretty bad. It really is. And I w- would like to have seen the state of the other rounds that they re- or the other matches they repaired as well. But uh, the notion that you got multiple turns in and then they stopped it is it sounds crazy to me. I I, I wouldn't ever do that <laughs> as a head judge or a tournament organizer. 
but it's a sticky wicket. I mean, they, they're compromising the integrity of the event either way because of the mistake. So I think it's a judgment call as to which is worse, and you're probably right that it is up to their discretion. I'd, be, I'd right. like to know if there's a recommended solution to that, though, in some kind of tournament organizer rules or guidelines from Wizards. I bet that there is. At any rate, so do you have any other scenarios you wanted to discuss from the event? Oh, I do want to talk about some other things, but I, I just wanted to reiterate that, um, you know, these kinds of things that may happen, um, especially the replicate, I think that, you know, um, if you as a listener participated in things that, you know, rulings that you weren't sure about or that later turned out to be incorrect, I think you should report that to Card Titan so they have that feedback and I'll certainly be sending that as well. Um, we, we talked a lot about workshops, which was interesting in terms of the... Um, you know, to what extent, why was it, and I think it's a really important question, why is it that the most successful workshop players in the event were the blue players? We talked a lot about that. That was another topic I wanted to touch on, but we already discussed it. But one other topic before we move on to some of the, the videos that I wanted to bring up is, and Kevin, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll lay this out. What effect does the size of the tournament have on the ter- on the outcome of the event? Certainly, there are things that we talked about in terms of size today, like the greater number of budget players, you know, things like that. But I really wonder, when you look at the Vintage Championship results, despite being regionally located within the Northeast Corridor, why is it Northeast slash, you know, Atlantic Corridor, why is it that the results are so different from the smaller, smaller in quotations events like the NYSE or Waterbury? That is, the Waterbury tends to have, the NYSE, for example, tends to have much stronger or more pronounced presence of some of these, like, blue-white decks, you know, not to say Blue White didn't do very well, but I mean these hard control decks seem to be more present in the top 16 mm-hmm. than they, you know, than they are in the Vintage Champs. And, and I, I, there, there are other trends like that, other discrepancies as well. And I wonder why that is. And I wonder if there's, there's some sort of scale effect at play that actually has an effect in outcome, or is that just completely misguided as a thought? Well, you're talking about blue-white decks, but I think what you're thinking of are the two landstill decks that were in the top eight of the NYSE, yeah. plus Bomberman and Blue Moon. Yes. Those were the blue control decks. There was also Bug, but, but yeah, that's debatable about control. Yeah, I meant these hard, hard control decks. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's interesting. I think that landstill was actually a bit underrepresented in Vintage Champs as a whole. I think... Perhaps that, yeah, Landstill, there were 22 players, 4.8%. I think that Landstill is the sort of archetype that doesn't scale up in attracting players to who, the players that bolstered the size of the event to the size that it was. And by that, I mean, there are a number of players who played in this event out of its proximity to Legacy, right? Legacy players who picked up a deck. There are a lot of players who played it just because of the pomp and circumstance of the thing, just to play in vintage champs who might not be vintage regulars, even if they're in the area. There are lots of reasons why players who aren't week over week or month over month of vintage players would come to this event. And I think those kind of control decks don't aren't attractive to that kind of player. But 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 they do so well in the NYSE. I mean, those those Bomberman slash, I mean, obviously Bomberman Oath 1, but I, I mean, I'm talking about pure Bomberman. The Bomberman, yeah. the blue-white, that, that deck has been so popular in the Northeast for years. There were only 11 Bomberman players at Champs. So so one possible explanation, the one I think I hear you saying, is that you know the same number of Bomberman players may be NYSC and Champs, but by nature of the size of the thing, they're a proportionally smaller number of the field. But... You know that doesn't mean they should be doing worse. I mean, <laughs> deck is just just good. It does. You know. So one way of thinking about decks is that their representation should be mirrored across, proportioned across the scale of across the sort of performance spectrum 
in the event. But but I but if people are playing Bomberman and doing really well because they're better players and more experienced and they think Bomberman has better position and it does really well for that reason at the NYSE, then it should replicate that experience at the uh, at the vintage champs and do outperform itself vis-a-vis NYSE. But it doesn't to, seem to do that. Same with Landstill. To your point about the numbers. Bomberman at NYSE was six players. Landstill at NYSE was 13 players. Yes. Those those decks clearly did not scale up in terms of the size of the events to the number of players. If they had scaled up uniformly, there would be yes. there would be three and a half times as many but, Bomberman decks. There would be three right. times six, you know, there'd be eighteen. But what I'm saying is but what I'm saying is that that is not a, so your explanation for why they didn't they're not performing whatever is because they're not just not as present. And I'm saying that doesn't seem to be entirely persuasive to me. I think that there's okay. yeah, I think that there's something I'm saying that you, know, you only need one of a deck in the field to make top eight. You know right. what I mean? And if the deck is is positioned well positioned as the experts think it is, then why you know whatever it should it should be performing equivalent I'll, better. I'll give you one other contributing factor, and I think it's the diversity of the field. Yes. So NYSE, if you look at Vintage Champs and you look at all the decks that were in the half a percent to two and a half percent range, right? You get some things like Storm, Doomsday, Dragon, uh, Blank City Vault, Reanimator, Burn. <laughs> I have a feeling that those kind of things tend to filter out. I think they tend to semi-randomly filter out players. If you're trying to bring Landstill to a large event, and your first-round opponent is playing Burn, right, right. <laughs> and then you take a loss, yes. and then you play against someone playing Budget Hate Bears, yeah. a deck yeah. you're not prepared for with your Landstill deck necessarily, exactly I think right. those kind of things happen, and they tend to filter out people semi-randomly. That's, that's less likely to happen at the uh, NYSE. Where it's, there was no, where, there was nobody playing burn at NYSE. Exactly what, straight zero. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Is I, I wonder if some of these decks that are popular in certain kinds of environments tend to not scale when you triple or quadruple the size of the event because of compositional factors. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two elements to what you're saying. One of them is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things that could be is consistency of the deck just against any opponent, and then the other one is the variability of opponents in a in a 480 person yeah. event. Yeah, when I say compositional effects, I mean the composition of the metagame, the decks that are present. Okay. You know, the there's decks, a there's a smaller yeah. there's a smaller metagame representation at the NYSE, not just fewer players, but there are fewer decks represented. And so there's a more... Met- yeah. I also think there's another factor too, which is new technology. NYSE didn't feature hangerback aggro for shops, for example. Sure. And also sure. NYSE didn't feature the new technology in the TPS decks that the likes of Jesse Martin and, uh, and Adrian Becker brought to the table. So there was yeah. some legitimate new technology going on at Champs this year, which may have also filtered out a couple of people who were bringing decks that were good against other expected factors. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, yeah, that's an interesting point, though. It's so, it, But I'm wondering, is it endemic to control decks? I thought that I looked at the NYSE results and I thought there was a huge number of blue-white decks in aggregate. If you combine Bomberman, it was a gigantic number. I mean, percentage-wise, you know, for the field of 150, it was like at least 10%, if not more, were just blue-white control, hard control, or Bomberman. That's interesting. I know there were some Stoneblade decks. There were two Stoneblade decks at NYSE, and as I said, 13 Landstill. Yeah, 13 Landstill out of a again, out of 150 out of a is a lot. Yeah, that's that's almost 10%. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, anyway, I mean, cert- Landstill was certainly not 10% of the Vintage Champion. No, it was, it was 4.8%. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I think the, the point is there are, I, I think that our listeners, if they're taking a takeaway, and I will certainly try, I think I knew this before, but it's a good reminder that the vintage championship, because of its composition and size, is just a different animal altogether. Mm-hmm. And some of these large, yet still not nearly the same size, magnitude, whatever, um, events, you know, like the NYSE or the Waterbury. And I think people who are looking at the NYSE for results to project should just always bear that in mind. That's an interesting point. I got into a brief Twitter conversation with Kai Buddha about the efficacy of dredge at the NYSE. And I said, because he was, he made a comment uh, somewhat out of the blue about how dredge wasn't doing well in vintage lately. His comment was no doubt colored by the lack of success, the just dismal performance of dredge in the (laughs) VSL, which is, I think, factors heavily into his perception of the format. I pointed out dredge just won the largest vintage tournament of the year, and I sent him a link to the results. His response was that... And I don't want to. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he questioned whether or not players had all the tools to beat Dredge in this large event. He said he he didn't think that necessarily everybody brought all the things, all the tools to the table to beat Dredge, implying that the fact that it was a vintage, large vintage tournament, he suggested a lot of people didn't have all the cards they needed to play the best deck. Right. He clearly hadn't looked at the results, so I I responded in the most succinct way that I could. I said. <laughs> I said there were 100 and how many players? 150 players? 150 some. There were 124 Black Lotuses in the event, and the other 18 people that didn't have Black Lotus chose not to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Budget was not a consideration for this event, primarily because it's a proxy event, but also because right. it draws the vintage hardcore crowd from the Northeast and, and points further. And so it, it, to, to, to the point is that Vintage Champs isn't like that. There were actual budget decks at the Vintage Champs. Not a lot of them, but enough of them. And there's also enough enough people who are just playing a legacy deck, legally or illegally so. Enough people who are playing a ported legacy deck. Lots of Delver players are in that category, that kind of thing. None of that factor exists at the NYSE. There's no ported legacy deck. There's no budget deck. No white X hate bears anything really. I mean, within a couple, within reason, but it's a sliver if it's there at all. These things, these things can crop up and ruin your day at Vintage Champs if you don't have the sort of deck that can adapt. Right. Well, I I just think you know we're obviously we spout our opinions, but I think the listeners should try and discern for themselves what differences the the scale and compositional effects make in terms of Vintage Champs next year because it does make a difference. Mm And, and all these things matter. Yeah, absolutely. My experience with the, the metagame at Vintage Champs, for example, so Delver as an archetype was 4.5%. It was below Landstill. <laughs> there was one fewer Delver player at this event than Landstill. That's incredible. But I faced and defeated Delver three times in the Swiss. <laughs> I played Delver in rounds 1, 2, and 10, which should tell you that Delver was right on the cusp because uh, I, I was right there playing it in round 10 in the X2 bracket still. But that's just an example of how that if that wasn't Delver, in the first two rounds, that could have been Burn for me. I could have played against Burn in round one or two. And I did play against a budget deck at uh, in round, what was it? It was before, it was after I took my loss, I think. Round six, I think there was a, a budget deck at X1, something like that. So I played against a budget deck in the event too. And to your point about playing a deck that can combo out, and this is something I said two years back when you asked me why I chose my deck, there is some inherent value in an in event of this size in having a deck that just has a powerful A plan. 
Exactly, which is why I played the deck with Fast Yawgmoth's yep. Will in this yep. event. And it's why I played Tinker in Time Vault two years ago when I did, because I just wanted to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's... So we want to talk about some of the scenarios that we saw on camera during the event? Absolutely. Not that you and I saw them on camera during the event, but <laughs> yeah. But our, our listeners may have. with Reed Duke's match. Reed Duke played a really interesting and and fun on-camera match. Reed Duke was, of course, playing his TPS deck. I will mention before we get into the scenario that, um, or the scenarios, because there's two interesting ones I'd like to discuss with you, Mm -hmm. that he had Bargain and Mana Vault in play, and it looks like, I can't tell for 100%, but it looks like that they made, he took a point of damage from Mana Vault with Bargain in play. Yeah, pretty sure that he did. Which, of course, should never happen. Yeah. For those so, of you who don't know, and Reed's probably just used to how bargain, or sorry, how Mana Vault worked for years and years and years. <laughs> but Yogmoth's bargain says skip your draw step, and Mana Vault's damaging ability triggers during your draw step. That's right. It triggers during the draw step. Yeah. The damage triggers. Yeah. Um, same thing with Necropotence. You should never take damage from Mana Vault if you have Necropotence. Okay? Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's two things I wanted to bring up. One was in I believe it was the third game he played turn one Time Twister. Oh, I'm sorry, he was playing against Mark Horna, who's playing Dredge. Mm-hmm. And uh, he played Time Twister, and he goes, land... I think it was a Rainbow Land. It, land. No, no, it was a C. It was a C. He goes, Underground C, Mox... Sapphire. Sapphire, Lotus Petal, one other Mox, I believe. He, he played a... He played a Chromox with no imprint. He played one more mana source, though. He played Dark Ritual off of Underground Sea, and then he tapped the Sapphire and two black from the Ritual and played Time Twister. Thank you. That's exactly right. So what I wanted to ask you, Kevin, is would you play the Underground Sea pre-Time Twister? And I I think there's actually a lot more subtlety here than is immediately apparent. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's worth discussing. Um, But I'm just asking you, would you play a land in that scenario pre-Time Twister? The short answer, I think, is yes, because there's only, to my knowledge, there's only one land in your deck that pays you back for not playing a land right there, and it's Talarian Academy. Of course, yep. And so the odds of you just drawing Academy in any hand of seven at that point is is below 500, way below 500. So there's that aspect. But the other is that the alternative is to expend a Lotus Petal to do it. Yes, yes. And so I think in both cases, Reed is just banking on the fact that he's... This is turn one on the play. Is it on the play? I forget. No, yeah. no, no, no. It's not on the play. No. It's on the draw. Mark did have Bizarre in play. Okay. It's turn one on the draw. It seems like he's floating a black and he has access to Lotus Petal, but no land drop. It seems like he's just banking on going off next turn. That's how I read that. Oh, well, okay. But it has a lot to do, I think, with your confidence and your ability to go off with black X available and drawing seven cards. And not knowing the exact construction of Reed's deck very well, I'm not certain how reliable that is with his deck. But I think by playing the land and not cracking the Lotus Petal, you're setting yourself up for a really, really good turn too. I that's interesting. I would not have I would not have played the land. You would play Petal, Ritual, Sapphire. Yes, for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Two reasons. One, 
there is a non-trivial chance that you can draw a, an academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's like, what, like a one in five chance, maybe? Maybe one in six? I don't know what it is, but it's it's non-trivial. It's, non, it's non-zero, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is that, and this sometimes comes up, I actually think it's better to have the Lotus Petal in your library because that's a card that um, it ups the storm, generates any any color mana. I'd rather have, I'd rather increase, I'd rather redraw it, increase my chances of redrawing it. Okay. Um, so because, you know, anything, you have a black mana floating and I'd rather have, anyway, I'd just rather have it. I mean, there's a lot of scenarios like like this that come up with combo. Like, do you sacrifice Black Lotus pre-Twister? And often the answer is yes, because you want to draw Black Lotus again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, Black Lotus is the, the logical conclusion there. Right. So I think my answer is, in, in, so so part part of it is thinking about what can you do on turn one, right? So if you have, you know, there's a number of different things that can, that can happen, of course. But um, the best case scenario is that you can, you can win on turn one. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of ways that can happen, but a lot of them may, you know, Lotus Petal, I think, only can help facilitate those. Redrawing Lotus Petal can almost help facilitate almost all of them. So I would, I want Lotus Petal back in the deck. Um, one of the ways that you can win is by getting Academy and Mind's Desire. So I want my, I want to give myself the, I want to give myself the possibility of maximizing my turn one win capacity. And I think not playing the C does that. The other thing is even setting up for turn two, um, there's a lot of things like, for example, you might draw a ritual necro. That's still all live, mm-hmm. right? That's still all live. And it, you could be in a position where, let's say you redraw petal necro. You only need one more black mana. So fine. You just, re, you know, get one of your black lands. Uh, I just feel like not playing the land maximizes your chances for winning on turn one mm-hmm. and set it and maximizes your chances for setting up turn two. Not not having the pedal in play for turn two. Well, playing the land first basically sets your turn two up with one more mana, right? Turn two. Turn, possibly, yeah. Not possibly, literally, because you're leaving the land, you're guaranteeing the land and leaving the pedal in play. But, but that, of course, there's always a chance that you'll use that pedal this turn. So Granted, there's also a chance that you will not draw a land in your seven cards. Of course. Which, yep. So you're taking, a, it's more of a sure route for turn two. Yeah. I think I'm, against Dredge, yeah. your opponent is, I think, a factor in this decision as well. Against Dredge, you're you're not really, you're not, you're not expecting them to turn to you, and so you um, you're not like, under I, as much pressure, I think, to to go off this turn. Yeah, I like the fact that he played the Chrome Mox. I think that's right. Sure. You're just trying ten mana and ten uh, ten storm and ten rolls. Sure. I think one of the things you just want to do is you know you're just trying to maximize your storm and ten rolls there. And certainly one of them is just you you twist her into ten rolls. You know. Yeah. And I think pe- pedal helps that. It's it's also worth noting that. Mark had Leyline of the Void in play. And what that means yes. is you're not going to be able to go off with Yawgmoth's spell oh, that sorry. turn. Oh, the fact that he has Leyline means that you're not going to get the, ten- the, the pedal back, by the way. I forgot about that. Yes. Thank you for okay. thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> it, so in a vacuum, the pedal play you mentioned is completely uh, a fair consideration. In this case, because of the ley line, you can't possibly get it back. Which is fine. Yeah. You know, fine. In that case, well, anyway, yeah. I looked up the polynomics on it, and uh, one card, drawing seven cards, one copy of something, say Tolarian Academy, in a 50-card library, which is what his library would have been after exiling a couple of cards on turn yep. one, 14%. Yeah, so it's non-trivial. Non-trivial. That means but also and, not and reliable. I would also... So, of 
course. Yeah. But I would so so the way I would frame it is my guess is if he draws the academy, he's probably a huge favorite to win. Agreed. Um, and if he doesn't draw the academy, there's a really good chance that he has enough storm. And he if he doesn't draw the academy, but he draws the tendrils, I think he probably can just win. There's a good chance he can just win. He doesn't draw any land. I mean, yeah. no land, but he draws tendrils. And, and his storm is sapphire ritual petal. Chrome Twister. Storm is five going in. Yeah. 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 So a, a hand of seven with tendrils is a very high likelihood. So I, I like not playing a land there because if you draw the academy, great. If you don't draw any lands, I think you know it's not the end of the world. You still you still you're denying yourself theoretically denying yourself one one mana. Yeah, it's card disadvantage. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so what turns out happened is is that unfortunately for Reed, he drew into a pretty a pretty uh, inelegant hand of seven that included his tendrils, included Wheel of Fortune, which is a near blank, and included Memory Jar and Vampiric Tutor. And the rest of the cards were lands. He had Soul Ring and Mana Vault. So it was a real unfortunate scenario that he, he drew a draw seven of sorts that he could have played in Wheel of Fortune, but it's the one, well, it's one of the draw sevens at that point that is completely out of right. the question because of right. Leyline of the Void and the tendrils in his hand. <laughs> Super fascinating. And the, this, yeah, and this, the other draw seven, quote unquote, he drew was Memory Jar, memory jar. which he can't win with because Tendrils is in his hand. Yeah, so I'm glad you set this up because this is the other issue I want to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about what you would have done there. Uh, what would, How would you have played that turn, that turn two? So if we can reconstruct his Time Twister hand properly, because it had Sol Ring and Mana Vault. Yes. It had at least two other lands, because he played a bad lands the next turn. Yeah. It had Vampiric Tutor, Tendrils. Wheel, and Jar. Tendrils. Jar and Tendrils. So maybe it was only one other land. Yeah, yeah it was only other land. So yeah, he had Tendrils. Four business spells, three it, mana cards. And just, just by way of, just to make this clear, um, the next turn, uh, Mark Hornung had played Cabal Therapy, mm-hmm. but he had he named, had he named, I think he named Necropones, which doesn't make any sense to me, but had he named Tendrils, he would have likely won the game. Yeah. Because yeah. I th- we think that was Reed's only win condition, That's... and it would have exiled the Tendrils. In any case, the, the irony is that if he plays the wheel, he ha- exiles the Tendrils and loses. Mm-hmm. If he plays the jar and activates it, he cannot win with the Tendrils because the Tendrils is exiled within, under the jar. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the question. So what he ended up doing was... Go ahead. I'll let you finish. Well, he had Mana Floating, so he played Soul Ring with the Mana Floating. He played Mana Vault off of the Soul Ring and passed the turn. Right. The So given the, the constraints of his Tendrils, the only real business card he had was Vamp. So he Vamped in his next upkeep for Yawgmoth's Bargain, which yes. he was at 14 life, I think. Pre-vamp, yeah, and he drew a ton of cards. Yeah, they went twelve, right? Twelve post-vamp, and then he only got he could draw at most of like eleven cards with yeah, and he barely got there, but he got there. (laughs) It involved Um, a time walk. Yeah. I'm curious how you would have played it because I have a very specific opinion on what I would have done. But I'm wondering what you would have done. I don't know Reed's list. We don't have Reed's list, sadly. The coverage team was going on and on about how the Tendrils was literally his only win condition. No Tinkerbot, no no anything. No second Tendrils, no Wish. Just that was it. So... I, I'm envisioning his whole list, and I'm trying to figure out what does Jar do for you because you can clearly play Jar there. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have played the Jar, and not only would I have played the Jar, but I would have probably vamped in my upkeep, and then or whenever I could have, and then Jarred in my upkeep to draw all seven cards and the eighth card. Okay. And I'll tell you what I would have been going for. Okay. I, 
I would have been going for trying to build a huge mind's desire inside the jar so that I could set up so I could desire into bargain in time lock or bargain in the time lock so that I could untap and win with the tendrils. That's what I would have done. Okay. That's what have been my goal or something along those lines. Um, strategically trying to get to that or within the jar trying to get a um, enough stuff on the table, even like a necro and a and a bounce spell to remove his ley line so that I could set up a will. Well, there's certainly something to be said for bouncing ley line inside of a jar activation. Yeah. But it's worth noting that jar is especially problematic against dredge. Yes. If you no, can't win no... that turn, you're you've put their well, whole library into their graveyard. You're, you're you're going all in on the jar. There's no question about that. But you, uh, but you need to pass the turn to win. No, no, you don't need to pass the turn. You absolutely well, you do because. But I, what I mean is, you need to be going for time walk. Okay. And that's why going I, all in for time walk. Yeah. Yeah. So I said I was. You know, if the, your goal strategically, I think within the jar. So I'm sorry. I could you could vamp for desire and then jar. Yeah. And try and go off, or you could vamp for bargain and then try and find the time walk and time walk and win. Gotcha. But either way, you're trying to. Ideally, I think what you do is you desire and you desire setting up. Um, like I said, bargain and time walk. I feel like you're discounting the mana necessary to cast the jar, though, because that involves expending your mana vault. But you can play the jar right there, right? Yeah, but you're tapping your mana vault to do it. Next turn, you would untap yeah. with Sapphire, Soul Ring, Land, Land. You'd, ha- you'd have five you, mana. Would he be able to play Vamp on Mark's end step and cast Jar? Uh, hold on, hold on. Let, let's walk this back. Let's walk this back. So when he draws his hand of Time Twister, he has one black floating and a useless Chrome Mox that doesn't produce mana and Lotus Petal. So he had one floating with access to Lotus Petal. He used the yeah. one floating to play Sol Ring, tap the Sol Ring, play Mana Vault. So and he has and he has, so that's four mana plus plus the pedal plus the mop, plus the land drop. So yes, so yes, you can cast jar. Yeah, there. so that's exactly what I would have done. Okay, I would have played and then, jar. And then on the next and upkeep, would, you, up, no, no. you on the next oh, upkeep. No, 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 no. On I would I would not have. He played vamp in his own upkeep, yes. which I would not have done. Okay, I would have. What I would have done is I would have used the um the badlands, which the black mana. He played so it on I'm, turn two. Oh, he, oh, because he already. played This was the all land. turn okay. one. Yeah, so sorry, in turn one, so he he only has five mana on turn one then. Well, post Time Twister, he could make five mana, yes. Yeah, so I would play the jar, mm-hmm. then upkeep, I would tap the Badlands. And Badlands is not in play. You have Underground Sea, Sapphire, Soul Ring. Sorry, I would tap the Underground Sea and Vamp. Yeah. And then I would... Yeah, um, Sapphire, Soul Ring. Yes, then I would then I would jar in my upkeep. Okay. Drawing seven cards, I go to my draw step, draw an eighth card, yep. and then I would try and desire for a bunch. That's what I would try and do. The desire would be at least for two. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, granted. With the sapphire and the soul ring, uh, reasonable you're to get to six mana, sure. Yeah, that's what I would have done. Okay. I mean, you you got you've got eight cards. One of them is desire, so you've got a maximum. Well, not a, a max actual maximum, but a theoretical maximum of seven spells beforehand. The odds of them all being playable is almost zero. So. We they have Hercules Recall. We don't know that. Well, that's true. We don't have his list. Yeah. If he has Hercules main deck, then there's a lot of... And the Randy was occasionally referring to Chain of Vapor, too, so we would assume he had access to, to bounce yeah. in his main deck. Which, is very similar, yeah. which would be fantastic there. Yeah. So, theoretically, you could assemble... The Chain of, the chain of Vapor is actually the most insane card he could get. Because he could, yeah, he could bounce his, his Sapphire and a Soul Ring and sacrifice the second land, if he has a second land drop, to bounce the Ley Line. That would have been the most. How large part. do you think your desire would be? A median well, desire there. Well, if if he has a second land and he can do what I just said, mm-hmm. he could yog moss will into an even bigger desire. Leyland of the he, Void. 
No, you didn't hear what I just said. What I said was, if he has a second land, he can chain, and he has chain. <laughs> okay. He can chain. He can chain the sapphire, his soul ring, and sack both lands to chain the land. Uh, okay, but then he can yog will. But now you're just yeah. banking on chain being in eight cards. No, I'm saying, but yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying is, there's there are a number of ways to make desire very, very big. What I'm trying to do is compare but, desire to bargain. There, how big do you yeah. think that desire is on average that turn? Uh, My guess is well, six. I, yeah, it's really hard for me to see how big his yog his hercules are. So you know what? So so um, if he has hercules or chain. I think he can get. I think he can get desire. I think the desire is probably. You know, I'm going to say. Well, he, here's another another complicating factor is that he could also. Well, yeah, I'm going to walk that back. I think you're. I think it's probably about seven. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think that. But but that you know obviously that's not the end of the road. I think the desire is probably a seven. If he has hercules or chain, it can it's obviously going to be much larger. Sure. And I think that um, if if it is much either way, I think there's a good chance he can either hit a tutor or time walk or or necro or bargain there's to al- be able to there's also the chance a- that mine's desire is uncastable which is the other problem yeah you can fan open a hand of seven cards and not be able to produce blue two with that deck but there's also a, a, a possibility that you can bargain at 12 life and draw 11 cards and not be able to use them all. except you're yeah. except you're guaranteed to have the man at a cast bargain which is part of my point it's a hundred percent castable and and it's a guaranteed x number of cards it's a guaranteed like 10 to 12 cards it's a guaranteed 10 probably a couple more as opposed to your desire which is not a sure thing to cast it's probably in the high 80s to 90s to cast it but when you do it's only a guaranteed like six to eight cards i just think i just think that your play is is higher risk there's another possible play as well but i would have been inclined to play the jar yeah no doubt okay so even if i didn't want to break it right the next turn which i probably almost certainly would i would be inclined to play the, the other play is just vamp for chain and then cast wheel and chain next turn yeah which is also very desirable because you're just trying to build up to a huge will there how much let's talk about how much mana you would have then you are starting your turn by vamping so you're tapping the C. Yeah. No, no, you're not starting the turn by vamping because you have a black floating. So you wouldn't play anything. You would just oh, vamp. Oh, vamp right then. Sorry, you're right. Ma- main phase turn one, post time twister, just vamp. That's a good point. Yeah, I would just va- just vamp and pass the turn. Yeah. Then you untap with oh, all Oh, wait, hold of- on. But he, <laughs> he used that black mana to cast Sol Ring and Mana Vault. So if you use that black mana to vamp, then you're starting your turn with C, Petal, Sapphire. Good point. Good point. So you probably don't vamp there. You probably play the Soul Ring and and Mana Vault. Oh, by the way, I should. Yeah, never mind. That's right. And then vamp That's on right. upkeep, and then use Petal. Yeah. Well, you play a land, so use that bad lands and Soul Ring to cast Wheel. Oh no, you chain first. No, yeah, you chain, sacrificing both lands. Yeah. But you bounce your Sapphire and your Soul Ring, and then you bounce you, their you bounce your Mana Vault. But okay. Yeah, sorry, the Mana Vault. Yeah. Yeah, mana vault, and then and then you bounce the ley line. You're pooling three. You're pooling two, three colorless. You're replaying your mana vault. So plus two, of- plus two colorless. You replay your sapphire. It's it's color neutral yeah, on that. You get a yeah exactly because you get a you actually get a blue out of that. No, I'm sorry, it's, you're right. You it's color neutral. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's color neutral. But yeah. you profit by two colorless. Right, you can profit by two colorless. Then you wheel and you have you use your land drop. That probably doesn't sound very attractive to me. Actually. That's what I, that's what I was trying to tease out is once yeah. wheel so resolves, I, you've got a whole bunch of colorless. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. That that actually works okay because you don't have to use your land drop that turn. No, because you're tapping the sapphire to chain. Yeah, so right. you've got a land drop. 
plus about seven oh. colorless. So that sounds actually very attractive to me. I would probably consider that as well. But it's over, also not over, a sure thing. Not, but again, and bargain's not a sure thing either. No, but I mean, we're comparing. Would you would you rather have seven cards and five colorless, or would you rather have like ten to twelve cards? I mean, that's yeah. So these and, are and reasonable the other thing, comparison. The other thing about the the desire line is the desire line. All those cards are free, so they don't cost mana. In fact, they probably all generate mana. Most of them will, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I genuinely think that Reed took a, a pretty safe approach out of several possible options. Yeah, it is interesting. I think I probably would have been inclined to go the jar route, honestly. But let's move on to another one. Yeah, I I just wanted to. to I don't really have a scenario here, but I wanted to point out LSV's match against Matt, Matt Costa was highly entertaining. <laughs> and L, what he did to Matt Costa is what he has done to me in the VSLs, and it is it's an amazing match. LSV had, I think, in the third game or the second, I think it was the second, I don't know whether it was the three games or two games, I don't remember now. But he drew an Ancestral Recall in his opening hand. LSV was playing Oath against Matt Costa playing Grixis Delver. And um, LSV held on to that Ancestral Recall for like 10 turns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not quite that long, but it was. And then the turn LSV won, he baited, I think, with the show and tell. Then he cast Ancestral Recall, which Matt Costa forced. And then he hard cast Gristlebrand for the win. <laughs> it was spectacular. Uh-huh. Um, it was hilarious patience. It was picking your spot. It was just it was brilliant at the same time. It was amazing. Although LSV did actually make one play mistake, so it's which was... Um, he uh, he fluster storm tapping a uh, tapping a, a forbidden orchard. He fluster stormed a cabal therapy. I think it was a play mistake. And Matt Costa just flashed back the therapy, yeah. so he wasted his fluster storm there, which is which he because he with the token that he generated. Yeah, yeah, he owned up to that in the post coverage interview too. It was pretty funny. <laughs> he was funny about his response to that. There was one play though. Since you watched that, Kevin LSV could have misdirected the therapy. He never used that misdirection at all. That game, I think that was the game LSV lost. Yeah, I think he was game two. He could have misdirected that therapy. Hmm. And 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 you know how that works? Well, yeah. The the controller of the therapy still gets to name a card, but right, they get to name a card, but you get to see their hand. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he, he never ended up using that. Like I said, he never used the misdirection. It would end up being completely dead. That was actually a, one of those situations where I would, may, be, may have been inclined to do that just to, because he was so far behind and you know just to get a grip on what his hand was. Mm, interesting. Um, I really encourage people to go watch that match. I, I wanna, also wanted to comment on the... One of the matches I wanted, yeah, the last match I wanted to talk to you about was the Demars versus Hiromichi Itao, because that match was fascinating. I really enjoyed watching that match, and I have so much respect for Brian Demars as a player. Brian Demars is an unbelievably, in my opinion, technically proficient player, and I, I really just, on a visceral level, I enjoy watching him play the workshop deck mm-hmm. because it's, it's just, it's just fun to watch Brian play Magic. I don't know why, <laughs> but I really enjoy watching Brian play Magic, and especially watching him play workshops. Yeah. Because yeah. it, you know, anyway, I, I felt like Brian was just off kilter that entire match, and Ito just had him. You know, Brian did a lot of little tricks, bouncing his. The, the basic dynamic of the match, though, was Hirmichi Tao got a smokestack down and had permanent advantage, and he had Crucible, and Brian was only in the game because he metamorphed the Crucible. You're talking about game two. Yeah, I'm talking about game two. Um, and uh, in any case, Brian. Brian um, was able to sort of stay in the game by generating additional permanent with Batter Skull, bouncing the Batter Skull with his academy. And Brian, by the way, I love how he held that academy, mm-hmm. you know, denying, you know, just again, really, really well played. But 
he was really off off sorts. It wasn't just the cards. It was you could kind of I kind of got the feeling that Hiramichi just had him, like had his number or whatever, psychologically or whatever. Anyway, I, I wanted to get your opinion because I actually thought Ito played really well, and I think you thought that he made some poor choices. But I wanted to get your thoughts on what you thought he could have done better. And I also wanted to say, in particular, I really like how Ito. There was there's a lot of wastelanding that didn't happen that game that could have happened, mm-hmm. but there was also some interesting plays where Ito aggressively buried ruin for tangle wire mm-hmm. and i thought that that was you know he had so many choices so many decisions that game and i thought that that actually ended up being very good plays the, the aggressive use of barry ruin with crucible to replay tangle wire over and over again but i wanted to get your thoughts on you know h- how ito ramped the stack the cards he sacrificed what he could have done what he couldn't have done what was your assessment you can't analyze this game without understanding the the two decks going against each other. Brian's on Hangerback Aggro, Hangerback Walkers, of course, featuring Markbound Ravager. Hiramichi was on stacks, basically, but he also had some Hangerback Walkers. He's and got, he had Lodestone. He's got, he's yeah. got, well, both players have Lodestone, of course. You don't play that deck without Lodestone these days. But he has Smokestack and he has Tanglewire and Crucible, of course. Post sideboard, both players are trying to minimize their spheres, maximize their permanent count, and in both games, Brian opened on a turn one Ravager. In game one, it was Mox Mox Ravager Academy Ravager, which is not a good opening for that right. matchup. In game two, it was Ancient Tomb Ravager, which Hiramichi wastelanded. Then Brian played a wasteland of his own and attacked. I think he had a Soul Ring. I don't remember if it was turn two or three. That Ravager was in the in play for turns and turns and turns. I mean, 10 turns later, that Ravager was still yeah. in play. It only ever amassed one other counter when Brian sacrificed a Tangle Wire. But there, there are so many dynamics in this game. I think both players played well, uh, but you know, 90 to 95% well. And I also think that both players made a couple of mistakes, and I don't know if those mistakes were proximate to their, their win or defeat exactly. For example, turn two, or th- no, turn one, Brian, uh, Ancient Tomb, Ravager Go. Hiramichi wastelands the tomb, says go. Brian untaps, he plays a wasteland. I think he just said wasteland go. And oh, attack yeah. with the Ravager go. Hiramichi yeah. plays a Mistress Factory and passes back. Yeah. Brian on his turn three then, he untaps with Ravager Wasteland. He had a Ghost Quarter, a Soul Ring, an, a uh, a Revoker, Academy, and Tanglewire in his hand. I know those cards from memory. There might have been one more. But his choices were basically he could wasteland Hiramichi's factory, he could play so he could play also play Soul Ring, he could play Tangleware, he could play Revoker. <clears throat> he chose to play the Ghost Quarter, tap Wasteland to play Soul Ring, tap Soul Ring Ghost Quarter to play Tanglewire and attack for one. Brian did. Brian did. Yeah. I do not agree with that play because his opponent has one permanent. Right. His opponent has a Mishra's Factory. And Brian has double Wasteland in his hand with Academy and Soul Ring to go with them. Right. And Revoker if, if his Hiramichi played the box. Yeah. So the Tangle Wire is a major... He, he's, te- he's, he's It's an inverse tempo. He's hurting himself more than his opponent by a long shot because his opponent's going to tap one permanent next turn. Brian's going to have to tap Tangle Wire and two others on his next upkeep. He's hampering himself far more. When, especially in the face of the fact that he can just... He has plenty of mana. He can just Wasteland that factory, attack for one, and be happy with the Time Walk. Right? Because it's yeah. just a time walk. Extra damage. Brian draw a card. Brian drew a card. He even gets to play Soul Ring if he wants to. He can go Ghost Quarter, Soul Ring, waste your factory attack for one. That's a huge tempo swing in Brian's favor. Right. But rather than that, he plays a Tangle Wire, which slows both of them down, but slows Brian down far more. I just so I, I don't agree with his turn three choice there. But then later on, Hiramichi also chose 
once he got multiple permanents out, the board state evolved for, like I said, 10 turns. Hiramichu gets a smokestack, he gets a crucible, which Brian copied, but not for two or three turns later. Uh, at one point, so Hiramichu was down to 11 life from Brian's early attacks, but he then had blunted all the attacks. He had a factory with crucible going. He had yep. between one and three lodestones over the course of the, the mid game. Yeah, he had three at one at point. One, three he had three, yeah. Hiramichu made a couple of, I think, indisputable errors. One of them was sacking Mox. One of them was sacking a non-land to a smokestack at one when he had Crucible out. <laughs> he, he smokestack was at one. He has Crucible and no lands in his. That's the thing. No lands in his discard pile. He sacks Mox Jet uh, and then plays a land from his hand that turn. <laughs> so he should have ended the game with one more permanent because of that. But also he, for some reason, became very protective of his life total in the mid to late game. He wasn't attacking with any of his. He had three lowstone golems, and he wasn't attacking with any of them. Yeah, at one point, he... Uh, uh, now, Brian had Ravager had out. Block. Yeah, one blocker. Brian had Ravager. Brian had Revoker on the Mox Jet, which is why Hiramichi sacrificed it. And there were many turns, I think two to four turns, where if Hiramichi attacks with a lodestone, Brian's just going to take it. Yeah. Because Brian can't afford to trade permanents. Hiramichi had the advantage. And I agree. it would have just been free damage. And oh, and also, Brian didn't have any good counterattacks. Yeah. The only good counterattack he could have mounted would have been to sack a lot of things to a Ravager and, and bowl I, over a Lodestone, but that was not a good play in that scenario. I completely agree with you. I, I really do think Hiramichi played exceptionally well, but the one thing that stood out to me was that I probably, and I'm the worst person when it comes to combat, <laughs> but I probably would have been attacking with at least one of the Golems. Yeah. Brian, it, uh, Brian could have traded permanence for the Golem, but trading yeah. permanence is in Hiramichi's favor. It's terrible. Yeah, exactly. It's a terrible deal when your opponent has smokestack crucible. Yeah. And just permanent advantage, period. Right. Because Hiramichi was, Hiramichi was ahead on the board. And, and the bird ruined crucible recursion guaranteed that Hiramichi would stay ahead on the board. Yeah. I also wondered if Hiramichi should have used Wasteland a little bit more aggressively. Oh, yes. I think several seconds. That was the other error. The, t- but the turn he played had... his first tangle wire, Brian had a, f- a tapped factory. Tapped. He should have wasted he should have, there. And yeah. Hiramichi had like two Wastelands, maybe three with his crucible. He he clearly should have wastelanded that factory and tapped down an, an, another better permanent with that tangle wire during Brian's upkeep. Now there's the small chance, not the small chance. There's the small uh, difficulty that with Ravager in play, wasting a factory basically is putting a counter on a Ravager. But the Ravager yeah. was one one at that point. It was, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. a threat. Oh. And if Hiramichi was afraid of that, he could have just held back the factory to block with Crucible. A Ravager can't ever get through a factory plus a Crucible. Ryan needed more than anything else. He needed to draw a hanger back. And that's another thing I wanted to say is that in me, in my eyes, that that whole match was defined by the fact that Brian could not find Hangerback Walker. That's the yeah. card for that scenario. It's the reason the deck exists, and he just never right. did one. If he had drawn that, he would have been able to fly over. And so Hiramichi really was incumbent upon him to be attacking. Yeah. Because every time he gave him more draws with the Academy Crucible Recursion, yep. once he finds Hangerback, then the Hangerback becomes a, a complete answer, not only to the Smokestack, which he can sacrifice, but then it becomes the win condition with the Arcbound Ravager. Oh, I couldn't agree more. As soon as... I, Hiramichi should have been taking more opportunities to offer up either five damage or trading permanence because both of them are in his favor, and Brian's deck can turn the corner in a heartbeat with a single hanger pack. I still felt that Hiramichi played really well. Well, he did. He managed that board. I just think he was overly safe, overly yeah. safe to the point of yeah. you know to a fault. I think he was safe. Yes, I agree. With <laughs> you. There were several, yeah. as you and I both said, several very obvious wastelands that should have happened. Wastelands that yeah. would have cut Brian off of multiple more permanents and resources. Yes, especially pre-crucible. That's the thing is he 
There were two turns before Brian had a crucible. Yeah. Hiramichi could have been more very actively wasting. I loved watching that match, and talking about it with you makes me appreciate it even more. I think people should go watch that match. There's a lot of matches to watch, but that match, that match and the LSB match, I, I think people should watch the Ito Demars match yeah. because that match is such a masterclass in playing workshops, and even how these great workshop pilots and I read workshop in quotation marks because neither Brian or Hiramichi are, are traditionally workshop pilots, but it, it was a fascinating highly decision-intensive, highly decision-intensive match. Yeah. I mean, the, every time that Hiramichi returned Buried Ruin to his hand, he could have been using a Wasteland and returning Wasteland. Or he could have just been holding on to that Buried Ruin and not using it as a long-term win condition. To He could have sacrificed the smokestack, gotten it back at some... You know, that's a long-term game plan, mm-hmm. right? Sure. At one point. So so there were so many like long-term, short-term, immediate, tactical, strategic decisions to be made in that match. And it could have played out... Of, I mean, I think... Pretty much the draws all their favorite Hiromichi, but there were lots of decisions that both players still had to make. With you know, even though I think Hiromichi is ultimately favored in that game. Mm-hmm. And Brian did do an excellent job of of abusing Batter Skull as representing multiple permanents. He, he missed he missed one one of those though, where he floated and he forgot to return it. He went to the draw step. Yeah, but but I mean, he really did do a good job overall. So he made good with what he had. It was a fascinating match. I'm really glad that they got so many cool matches on video, and I hope that, uh, you know, it's not... It, the great thing about it is that it's something you can come back and watch any day. Like, you have to do it this weekend, but, uh, no. Yeah, for yeah. those of you who didn't watch it in real time and weren't there, or if you were there, therefore didn't watch it in real time, all the videos are still out there on Card Titan's Twitch page. Go watch them. It's good stuff. And you can also watch my de- old-school deck pack. Oh, yeah. That's fun. So as we wrap up, you know, then a championship is usually a, a big pivot point in our in our year in our podcast calendar. Um, the lack of major vintage events on the rest of the calendar. NYSE is behind us. There's no Waterbury on the calendar. Vintage championship is a lot earlier than it normally is. We, our vintage championship is usually in September. Uh, at least it has been in the last couple of years. That leaves potentially a lot of dead space for us. And you know, our podcast is not frequent. <laughs> but um, I definitely think we should do some more podcasts this year. We'll, we'll definitely do one on the next set, which is what is it? Return to Zendikar. That's right. Battle for Zendikar. Battle for Zendikar. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a obviously we'll do our review. But um, as I you know last summer I thought we would do a big podcast on Gush, but I obviously put my Gush book in abeyance to work on a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> now that I'm going to ramp up for that again, as soon as I get you know most of that done, we will definitely do a podcast on Gush. A special so many insane plays tactics gush episode this fall if not late fall early winter and we may or may not do one on old school magic i think it would be fun to do one another one on scenarios but um as always we welcome your suggestions but those are things that you can look out look forward to later on this year sounds good steve what do you think about doing a little bit of listener feedback i got a couple of tweets that i'd like to to point out and address now, when we mentioned that we were recording this show, I tweeted out, got asked people for what they wanted to hear about. There were a couple of things. Now, we've covered a lot of them already. A couple of people wanted to talk about Oath. Is Oath a menace? Yeah. <laughs> Lisa Seeley says, Oath menace? How many players next year? So, And another player, Robert Fletcher, says, 
Similarly, Oath Pillar winning back-to-back years, is this an issue? You know, I think the short answer is no. I think it's a complete non-issue. Yeah. yeah. But we touched on it in our assessment of Brian Kelly's oath list, which is that we would not consider it to be the same kind of oath. Not at all. It, it straddles... Uh, archetypes it straddles strategies in a lot of ways so it's dramatically different than mark taco's oath and i don't think it points to any kind of problematic dominance at all people are asking if oaths should be restricted i think that'd be a huge mistake oh yeah huge mistake oath is a really important and, and fascinating component of vintage and again if you listen to the previous podcast we went through all the data it's a tiny part of magic online results and you know not what like 10 percent of vintage top eights outside uh, in paper magic mm-hmm. so it's not even remotely a problem in my opinion and i think another point that's that we've touched on it a little bit but oath as an archetype has gone undergone dramatic changes in the last few years it's yeah. it's it doesn't look anything like it did three years ago. I mean, the addition of show and tell is only about two, two and a half years old now. That is a major breakthrough. Well, I mean, it's clear that the printing of Gristlebrand dramatically upped the the power of oath. Granted. And, and, and show and tell, you know, I mean, when as soon as Gristlebrand came out, I was using it in Burning Oath with the show and tell on the sideboard to Burning Wish for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it's not like show and tell was completely absent from the oath decks, but it was a more of a one of. Yeah. Then Fenton moved it like to a two or three of, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I think, you know, it, Brian, again, Brian Kelly's deck, I don't want to say that that his deck won in spite of Oath because Oath <laughs> really contributed, but the, the fact that he has plans that aren't built around Oath, you know, is critical mm-hmm. to keep in mind. So, I no, I don't think Oath is a problem. I think it's completely defensible to say that we have at least three, we have at least three different Oath decks that have three completely different Plan Bs, right? <laughs> there's there's Fenton-style Oath where Plan B is to cast Show and Tell to put Gristlebrand in. Right. There's Brian and Kelly's... And be a Jay's time vault. Yes. Granted, there, I'm talking. Yeah, okay. I'm talking how it interacts with its with the card of the druids, I guess. But you're right. You're completely right. Um, more there's multiple plans. But then there's Brian Kelly Oath, which obviously overlaps with Bomberland, Bomberman. And then there's Burning Oath, which is a combo deck. It's a draw seven based card drawing combo deck, pure and simple, but also has Oath as a way to be a, a secondary cheat of card drawing and, and win conditions. So. These yeah. plans are all, they're all very distinct. Yeah. The Oath archetype is not pigeonholed. We maybe are guilty of pigeonholing it when we said we didn't think Oath would make top eight, because obviously we're referring to just one of those three options. Absolutely. Yeah. So no, no problem with Oath. Oath is good. I agree. A couple of players use the hashtag more hammer mage. <laughs> Do you, are you familiar oh, yeah. with the hammer mage uh, technology? Sally Moss oh, played I... it in the, in the sideboard of his moat control deck. It's the spell shaper from from Mercadian Mass. It costs one red, and you discard a card and pay red X, and it destroys all artifacts with converted mana cost X or less. Are you not familiar with this technology? No. Well, it's a it's kind of a bridge. I talked to Sully specifically about it uh, the day before the event, and he was talking about it in the in the sense that it is it's kind of a means it's part of a package, right? You play one counter spell or removal spell in the early game so that you can get to the point of resolving Hammer Mage. It only costs two. And then the goal of Hammer Mage is not to blow up Lodestone Golem and, and Forge Master. Yeah. It's just kind of a sphere and chalice kind of cleanup, yeah. provoker cleanup. And if you can clean up things that cause between zero and two in the shop deck, then that turns on all of your big mana stuff, basically. Right. Then you could play right. Jace or Dak or the Ingachu or the Plow you're holding to clean up the board, at which point that still all leaves a Hammer Mage at play. <laughs> Amazing tech. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So it's it's of course it's weak to revoker if your opponent knows you have it, but it's still a nice uh, supplementary factor for various sideboard plans against against workshops. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw people more people splash.
flashing one. It's akin to your devout witness and Vyashino heretic, right? The, the thing that's repeatable use that once you get it going, it can really take over a game. Hmm. Also, Scott Fielder wants to talk about three cards, Hangerback Walker, which we've covered in detail, Dark Petition, and Magus of the Moat, though. Well, um, Mages of Moat is simply included because it's an oath target. Yeah. It's, it's a moat that has a, uh, you know, moat is obviously a very powerful effect and has been since 1994. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, in fact, I'll go on record, moat is my favorite, probably my favorite card of all time. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it's the, the, the other two, you know, that there was a hashtag on Twitter, a trending topic of name three cards or three magic cards. Mm-hmm. My magic cards were Gush, Lion's Eye Diamond, and Moat. Cool. Those three favorite cards of all time. Um, but... Yeah, I think I think it's really that simple. I don't think there's anything particularly special there. And we've talked a lot about hangerback mage. I hangerback walker. I see nothing to add to our extensive discussion, both second to last uh, podcast and today. No, but on dark. Yeah, one thing we haven't really acknowledged is the presence of dark petition. So I mentioned my match against Jesse Martin on TPS. Uh, yes. He he is one of a short list of players who brought Dark Petition based TPS to the weekend and did well in both the prelim and reasonably well in the main event. Jesse ended up in twenty fourth place. But the thing about the thing about this deck is Dark Petition is you and I didn't think it was good enough really. I mean our review of it was that it's probably pretty probably too slow and there's no Dark Ritual based decks in the format right now really. But we also said what are you getting besides Jogwell's <laughs> right. So my response on on their performance of Dark Petition is first of all this may be completely wrong and I could be sounding I could be incredibly ignorant here but my gut reaction or my initial reaction is that um, Jesse Martin and others probably would have done just as well with the TPS list that didn't have Dark Petition. <laughs> that is their success is not directly attributable to Dark Petition but rather their skill with those archetypes and um, the power of the other cards. That said you know, I think the, the crux of our I don't really have anything to add specifically to um, our assessment. I think our assessment in the previous podcast in our in our set review remains accurate in the sense that the problem with Dark Petition is that what are you getting besides Necropotence or Yawgmoth's Will? Now that may sound ridiculous to say, but the fact of the matter is that it's it's so narrow in scope the mana it generates does not give you a lot of options in terms of being a full-fledged demonic tutor. So you're really pressured into getting either Yawgmoth's Will or, or Necropotence. If you get Yawgmoth's Will, you're then pressured to playing it right then and there. Which means that you need to win post doing it. And, you know, it's not simple just to win post will. I mean, you know, you have to have something else you could do post will, post dark petition, meaning you probably have to be able to play dark petition again, find the tendrils, and then you need one more minute of tendrils. In terms of necropotence, you know, I don't think it's an efficient, I don't think necropotence is a very very tricky card to use in contemporary vintage. <laughs> the turn, you know, there's a lot of burn out there. There's a lot of, you know, mismanaging Necropotence can be death. And I think paying three mana to get and play Necro- Necropotence is not particularly easy in a workshop environment. So I, I don't really feel at not one iota different about Dark Petition than I do today. Now, you have some sort of assessment, Kevin, about how they designed their deck to maximize it. It sounds like you feel like they made it a little, a little bit of a slower TPS deck. <laughs> The card library of Alexandria in this deck speaks to the bigger picture. And if you were to look at just the main deck in this these, these TPS list that they brought to the table, it, it looks like they just shoehorned Dark Petition into a, a relatively older list. There's all the restricted cards you could imagine. They do have main deck, Hercules, and Rebuild, so they're planned for shops. There's two Tendrils. There's 33 mana sources, which is a lot. Three Mox Opals. I mean, they're they're loaded for bear here with Haymakers. There's four duress in the main. 
but it's the sideboard plan and it's their overall plan, I think, against workshops that really tells the story here. Because the sideboard that Jesse Martin played is one rebuild, three Hercules recalls, four defense grid. All right, that's some standard anti-workshop, anti-control stuff. But then check this out. One strip mine, three wasteland, one ancient tomb, one blightsteel colossus, one toxic deluge. Wow. So you're taking a 33 land deck and post sideboard against workshops, you're bringing in five more lands, 38 mana sources against shops, and fully two rebuilds, four Hercules. Well, so they're six playing, Hercules. Yeah. They're playing a very focused and unusual combo deck. They're playing a combo deck that's clearly geared towards shops. Mm-hmm. But more than that, they're not playing the kind of combo deck that we've seen in TPS or Pitch Long in the past. They're playing a combo deck that has a very linear plan. Mm-hmm. Much more linear than typical combo. But I think so, this works into the strength of Dark Petition, though. Of course it does. Yeah. It's absolutely designed around Dark Petition, but that doesn't in, that doesn't sort of change my opinion of the viability of Dark Petition. <laughs> I, that deck does not sound terribly exciting to me, frankly. Well, I think they're... I'm sure, sure it's fine, but it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as like something that's going to shape the metagame in a profound way. No, I, I think you're probably right. I don't predict that this is the new wave, that this is the next coming of anything per se. But I do think they've turned the workshop matchup on its head here. For sure. I do think they found an approach to that matchup that a lot of Storm combo players in the past would never have thought of. And it's basically to just slow down and and really overpower them. The workshop yeah. players, I mean. Yes. And and they don't have Force of Will in this deck, for example. There's no Force of Will here. Yeah. Whatever your workshop opponent does for the first three or four turns, this deck is just going to let it happen. <laughs> This is gonna. This deck's gonna let it happen. It's gonna hit its fifth land drop. It's gonna hit its sixth land drop. It's gonna hit its seventh land drop. Unless you've got four or five spheres in play, which a lot of the modern workshop decks in this event can't do, you're gonna get Hercules, and then they're just gonna proceed to play their threats. They're bringing in Blightsteel Colossus against workshops. I'm almost certain of it because that way you can just win the game with EOT Hercules. Play this one thing. Maybe I can cast my other Hercules now that you let me play all my mocks, and who knows. I would love to see what this deck actually looks like in games two and three against shops, because I bet it looks like nothing you've ever seen. <laughs> They're probably boarding out rituals, so they probably don't really have 38 mana sources. Do nothing. I mean, it's not totally dissimilar from what my Burning Oath deck does, in the sense that all I'm trying to do is Ancient Tomb Hercules Recall. And if this deck is obviously their deck is even slower yeah. because they have more lands and they're wastelanding the shop to slow down their the shop's capacity to make it more symmetrical and slow down the game. Yep. But the thing I think is interesting is that they've basically eschewed any other approach. You're burning yeah. you're burning tendrils so deck for that's example. Why it's, that's why I said it's hyperlinear. Yeah. What they're doing. Yeah. It's hyperlinear, but not in the sense of <laughs> it's it's linear in a in the way that land still is linear, right? And the only thing I'm going to do is is win is, is kill you on turn 25. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. that kind of linear. Not that this is that slow, but the point is is that this, they're doing something tactically and strategically that I don't think Storm Combo has ever really done. Your your Burning Oath deck can't just lay lands until set, turn seven and then Hercules them and win, right? It doesn't work that way. You've got to find yeah. your openings. That's why you've got multiple ancient tombs is because you want to squeeze that in on turns one, two, or three to to go yeah. off. I mean, I guess shops. I'll I'll go longer than that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, a dark petition, as Steve as Steve said here, it might not be the the absolute future of this archetype, but but a couple of strong players here have come up with a really interesting use for it. For sure. Well, Steve, that brings us to the end of our eternal weekend review. Vintage Champs was amazing this year. I'll see you there next year. Can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode 47 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays. 
or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>